Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you for that wonderful applause. I look forward to it every week. How are you doing, Mr. Real? I'm doing so good. Life is good. How are you? I'm great. Excellent. I'm What's great. The, I see Marvel. What's the rest of the shirt there? There's a bunch of Marvel characters, believe oh, it or not. look at that. A bunch yeah, of just tons of them. And I love the colors. It's nice and it's colorful. Yeah. Oh, and right. there's Maven. Right. Yeah, I want to test my connection and uh, give a shout out to Exmo Shirts for merchandise and have the chat guys help me out. Am I coming through okay for I you can guys? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Looks sounds cool. good. Yay! I'm very excited about that. But yeah, awesome. I'll put the link uh, in the description for everyone. Sweet, Thanks. Sweet. Good to see everyone. Cool. Thanks so much, Maven. All right, the chat looks like it's already quite uh, lively. Looks like there's several comments there. Just a couple of quick announcements, folks. Uh, we are going to be using uh, several clips tonight from a conversation between Rick Bennett and Thomas Wayman. I'm hoping we get to those. Uh oh, who? We have from a, Rick Bennett? You mean from yeah. his show, Gospel Tangents? You got it. So nobody tell Rick Bennett we use some of the clips from his show. It's our little secret. He's very, very sensitive about that. Yeah. But we are going to be using a bunch of clips. We did uh, source the show in the show notes. So when this gets published, the very first link in the resources will be a link to that show. And we ask you to go check it out. It's, I think, a really good conversation between Rick Bennett, the host of Gospel Tangents, and Thomas Wayman. There's actually two parts, but in tonight's show, we're only using part one. And uh, also, just to note, we're going to go cover a lot of material tonight. We actually anticipate this will be a two-part show. We'll see how far we get. But um, folks, so just be prepared that this may turn into a, a two-parter and we'll pick up part two hopefully next week. And uh, if you can, if you can support the show, just in case it does get pulled down for some strange reason, if you'll go over on the far side of the video over there, click the donate button, send us a few bucks. We would really appreciate it. It's what allows RFM and myself and Maven to do uh, this work of diving deep into church history, social issues, and current events and to share things in a way that I think is deeply interesting to a growing audience. So we appreciate each and every one of you. And uh, if you want to support the program, do that. RFM, any thoughts from you before we begin? No, I know that uh, this is a big, big deal. And you've done a lot of research on this. And I'm anxious to hear what you have lined up for us tonight. Let's do it. Let me uh, take that. Let's go here and add slideshow to the stream and i did reach out to thomas wayman and he did respond back he's actually on a trip uh i think he was out of the country if i remember right but he said that when he when he got back into town that he would reach out to us and i would love to have him on and it'd be kind of a follow-up to this uh episode or this two-part episode that we're going to do tonight so in the conversation with rick bennett uh they had a uh, they they centered the conversation around the king james bible and around the joseph smith translation and so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. And so the first thing I wanted to do, RFM, was set up the Mormonism that you and I 
uh, grew up with, and I say grew up with, I, I was an adult, you were an adult, we both were converts to the church right? Uh, as kind of late teens, early adult uh, age. But it's really strange because you joined the church in 78, I joined in 96. But when you and I talk about the Mormonism that we were, inoc- you know, that we uh, was going to say inoculated with, but the Mormonism, Mormonism that we uh, had, <laughs> yeah, um, it it really is the same Mormonism. Everything you say is how I remember it as well. And so there was a few decades there where Mormonism was very consistent. It had all the answers. And one of the cool pieces of theology is around the KJV and the Joseph Smith translation, the JST. Mm-hmm. So with that, let me turn to slide number two, and we'll set this up with a couple of quotes. So first off, the LDS handbook, quote, the church identifies editions of the Bible that align well with the Lord's doctrine in the Book of Mormon and modern revelation. A preferred edition of the Bible is then chosen for many languages. Uh, oops, I don't want that. Let me go back up here to comments. I just need to. I'm going to have to kind of take these down at times, Maven. Sorry. Um, A preferred edition of the Bible is then chosen for many languages spoken by church members. And in English, we all know that's the KJV. And I just want to note the bottom uh, section of the handbook. On the right-hand side of your screen, you'll see the handbook. It says, when possible, members should use a preferred or church-published edition of the Bible in church classes and meetings. This helps maintain clarity in the discussion and consistent understanding of the doctrine. Other editions of the Bible may be useful for personal or academic study. So I, I do think it's nice that the church isn't saying that they're against other Bibles being used, but for the consistency of doctrine during the two-hour block, for us it was a three-hour block, they want the same edition to be used for across that language. And for English, that's the KJV. Mm-hmm. Okay, the negatives of the KJV are actually a good thing. This was Brigham Young University professor Gay Strathern, and this was uh, several years ago, maybe even a decade ago or so or more. But he said the biblical language that seems archaic to readers can actually be a positive thing. There are certainly difficulties associated with the King James Version, but having to read the text carefully because of the language can be beneficial. So if it's really problematic to understand, it forces us to slow down, and hence that might be a benefit to our gospel study as we take our time trying to figure out what's going on there. Yeah, and this is, to my mind, just an apologetic response to try and find something good to say about the King James Version. Now, there are some things you can say about the King James Version, but what you cannot say about it is that it is the most accurate translation of either the Old or the New Testament. And not only is it the most accurate, and by what I mean by that is it is not based upon the best and oldest manuscripts. Right. Okay, so that's number one. Number two is the language, which is very difficult for people to get through. It's Elizabethan. It is in some sense in English, but it's like half of a foreign language. And it's very, very difficult for people to understand unless they are going to really, really work at it. And so this is one of the things that makes it difficult and makes the King James Version, although it was the version for the United States, at least the Protestant United States, For quite a long time that has been adopted by the lds church but now we have a situation where why are we sticking with the king james version when it is inferior in pretty much every respect yeah totally and then we get bruce r mcconkey who always has something to say on just about every topic Uh, he says the holy bible as of now is the most influential book ever written in the entire history of the world although bruce r mcconkey is written as presently constituted. I like the as of now because I get the feeling he's holding on space for the Book of Mormon to outpace the Bible in that category. Yeah, he probably wants that to set some records in the future, huh? 
uh, as presently constituted, it contains those portions of the sacred writings of Judaism, Christianity, which have come down to us in relative purity. Um, the King James Version of the Bible, as published in the English tongue, is probably the best Bible ever prepared and preserved among scholars, uh, preserved by the scholars among men. It's the um, best, Jerry. The it's best. the very best. <laughs> so uh, Bruce R. McConkie saying the KJV is the best. Uh, then we've got Joseph Smith says he's doing a translation hmm. and from Revelation knows many parts have been taken or lost. So he talks about his return from the Amherst con uh, conference. He says, quote, I resumed the translation of the scriptures from sundry revelations, which had been received. It was apparent that many important points touching the salvation of man had been taken from the Bible or lost before it was compiled. Uh, it appeared self-evident from what truths were left. And he goes on to talk about how one can get uh, back to through the gospel, get back to heaven through the Bible. But he notes that pieces have been lost. What are you what yes. are we looking at there? That's the heading to section 76, which also has the same quote yes. in it. Because this comes right before section 76, where they're doing part of the Joseph Smith translation, and they're worrying over this particular passage. I believe it's in Matthew. And it seems to indicate that people will be judged by their works. Well, basically because it says it well, and I think it's Matthew 5.29. Yeah, it is Matthew 5.29. So anyway, and so then they get this huge vision, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon. Mm -hmm. in tandem that answers that question yeah and what we're getting at here folks is that the mormonism that i learned that rfm learned that i think most of you learned was that the kjv the king james version was a superior bible translation and the best one for latter-day saints to use and that we ought to be weary of using any other translation in english or even wary Mm -hmm. And also, and also um, that the Joseph Smith translation was Joseph Smith recognizing from various sources, by the way, we'll get to this, including the Book of Mormon, various sources that there had been corrupted parts by the corrupt priest in other religions, most especially, as Bruce R. McConkie noted, that great and abominable church, mm -hmm. and that... Uh, there are books missing from the Bible, which we can see. We we can note that in the Old Testament, for instance, there's lots of books mentioned that we don't have access to today. And in the and, New Testament. Yeah. And Joseph Smith was his Joseph Smith translation, the inspired translation of the Bible was him restoring the corrupted Bible with many lost precious parts back to its original form or close to it. Yes, he is. This is part of the restoration. He is restoring the Bible back to what it said originally before things were taken out and changed by the corrupt priests, either intentionally or inadvertently. He holds out space for that. But the thing that's clear is he's getting us back to the original. And that is the point and purpose of the Joseph Smith translation. Yes. And so what RFM and I are doing here to set the groundwork is showing that we didn't just imagine that but that there are plenty of quotes throughout Mormonism that attest to the things we've said about both the uh, KJV, King James Version, and the JST, Joseph Smith Translation. Right. And so, he, so here's the one from Smith where he says, I resume the translation of the scriptures from sundry revelations which had been received, that's him receiving revelations. It was apparent that many important points touching the salvation of man had been taken from the Bible or lost before it was compiled. 
and that or lost before it was compiled is especially important when you understand this is a preface to his receiving section 76, mm. which is more than just, oh, we're going to fix John 529. It's a massive vision slash six vision slash addition to our understanding. So this is part of the part that he, I think he would be saying it was lost before it was compiled, even though there are still hints in the New Testament about a third heaven here and there. Yeah. And then in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith is recorded as saying, quote, I believe the Bible as it read when it came from the pen of the original writers, ignorant translators, this will come in later, by the way, ignorant translators, careless transcribers, or designing and corrupt priests have committed many errors. Encyclopedia of Mormonism. And that's from uh, 1991 talk- or two, isn't it? So this is just 30 years ago, this yeah. article. Yep. And then in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, I don't know if you can see it, but I've got uh, the four, I think there's four, yep, top, let's see here. Whoop. Those top right corner there, those four books laying on the bottom is mm-hmm. the Encyclopedia of Mormonism. It says, um, this is substantially beyond the usual meaning of translation. They're talking about the JST. When he said Bible was not translated correctly, he not only was referring to the difficulties of rendering the Bible into another language, but he was also observing that the manuscripts containing the text of the Bible have suffered at the hands of editors, copyist, revisionist, through centuries of transmission. Thus, the available text of the Bible are neither as complete nor as accurate as when first written. His translation was not done in the usual manner of a scholar, but was a revelatory experience using only an English text. He did not leave a description of the uh, translating process, but it appears that he would read from the KJV and dictate revisions to a scribe. So there's that. First presidency statement. Uh, and again, we're we're kind of moving back and forth between the JST and the KJV. They're very interconnected on these issues, um, and you'll I think you'll sort of see that as we play this out. Uh, so you'll have to kind of parse these out in your mind a little bit. Um, but first presidency statement on the King James version of the Bible. In I'm I'm just doing the bolded parts. In doctrinal matters, Latter Day Revelation supports the King James version in preference to other English translations. All of the presidents of the church, beginning with the prophet Joseph Smith, have supported the King James Version. It is the English language Bible used by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Right, and that first presidency statement is from 1992, signed by Ezra Taft Benson and his counselors, Hinckley and Monson. There you go. Um, Here's Bruce R. McConkie again. Uh, He talks about negative attitudes towards the JST are part of the devil's program. Uh, May I be pardoned, he said, if I say that negative attitudes and feelings about the Joseph Smith translation are simply part of the devil's program to keep the word of truth from the children of men, Bruce R. McConkie. And this was a book that you were familiar with. Yeah, I I got this book. I was getting all these books and everything with a Sidney B. Sperry symposium and all these things are symposia, whatever. But and anything that related to doctrine, and this is a separate series that's put out by the R.S. Uh, RSC, the Religious Studies Center of BYU, and they would put papers together on a certain subject. This was the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, in which I was very interested and did a lot of study and research back in the 1980s. So they have a lot of people doing it. And of course, because it's BYU, their keynote speaker is an apostle. In this case, it's Bruce R. McConkie. 
So he gives mm-hmm. the opening address and his papers included first and foremost in this book. Yeah. And then um, the changes by the JST are true and have no bounds. Again, Bruce R. McConkie. Uh, the revealed changes by Joseph Smith are true. Of course, we have adequate and authentic original sh- sources showing the changes. He says, since when do any of us have the right to place bounds on the almighty and say, we will believe these revelations, but not those. So again, he's referring to the JST as a revelation. Joseph Smith is talking to God, receiving correction. And then, and then in other places, we're told that he is, that the correction that's being given is restoring the corrupted Bible with lost parts back to something closer to its original form. Right. And I want to say a word of clarification here because this could be easily misunderstood. Bruce R. McConkie was not a model of clarity right here. When he says, of course, we have adequate and authentic original sources showing the changes. He's talking about the rapprochement that occurred mainly because of Robert J. Matthews with the reorganized church through which we got access to the Joseph Smith translation. And we could see that contrary to the suspicions the church had, the reorganized church was accurately reflecting what it was they had in their original manuscript. So he's talking about the original manuscript of the Joseph Smith translation. He is not talking about early Greek manuscripts that support the Joseph Smith translation, because when it comes to those, we find that the the situation there is basically there isn't any. There are no ancient manuscripts that show or corroborate or support the changes that Joseph Smith made in his Bible revision. Yeah. And we'll see that later from Thomas Wayman's comment, uh, comments about it. But it's important to note, I think, at least it seemed his language here seems not strange from just the point you made, but also from the angle of they didn't always have the original sources. The RLDS church had them, as you pointed out. The church didn't really do much about it. And then there comes a point where the LDS church reaches out, makes a relationship with the RLDS church gets their hands on the Joseph Smith translation, sees all the original documents, and agrees that the RLDS church hadn't uh, sabotaged them or corrupted them. And and in doing that, he sort of words it in a way as if to say, hey, like, don't doubt us. We've always had these. We've always known this was here. It's almost like he says it in a way as to deter people from being curious about it and then going to find out the story of the RLDS church having him in the first place because if this quote would have come 10 years earlier, he wouldn't have been able to say that. It was, there comes a point where the, I don't, I don't know what the year is, but the RLDS church. 85. This okay, is so from it, that same book. Right. And so at some point, just just shortly earlier, the church doesn't have access to these and it has doubts about what is on them. Yes. So his quote doesn't really indicate that, uh, that transition. Uh, but anyway. Yeah, to give a little bit, I'm sorry, I know you're trying oh, to get please. through this. To give a little more background on the Joseph Smith trans of the Bible. This is something that, of course, was in the hands of the reorganized church. Emma kept these documents with her when the split occurred uh, between the, what would become the reorganized church and the LDS church that went west with Brigham Young. And after the uh, reorganized church was organized, which was quite some time later, they published their Bible, which is called the Inspired Version of the Bible, or it will be abbreviated as the IV And what that is, is that is the King James Version with the Joseph Smith translation changes in it. They're not in footnotes like in the LDS Bible from 1979 
They're not in footnotes. They're not in appendices. They are actually incorporated into the text of the Bible. And my recollection is, though I haven't looked at one recently, my recollection is, is that there's really no apparatus by which you can tell just by reading the inspired version, which is Joseph Smith and which is the original Bible. But that's been published since 1867, I believe. It was two years after the Civil War was over. But we did not know whether they were accurately reflecting what was in the original documents in their inspired version. And in fact, the inspired version was very much frowned upon being used in Utah among the Latter-day Saints. So Robert J. Matthews, he was the guy. He was a huge, huge figure in this. He had a massive interest in the Joseph Smith translation. He since passed on. I don't believe he was ever a general authority. He was a professor in the ancient scripture department at BYU. And he is the one who reached out. He made these bridges or rebuilt these bridges, made connections with the reorganized church. And it was through him, and that's why he should, I think, get a lot of credit for this. It was through him that he was able to get access. And as an agent of the church, and there may have been other people involved by this time, but he was able to go back and check everything and see, yep, the reorganized church did not change anything from the original manuscript. That had always been the suspicion, but that suspicion was laid to rest. And it was because of that, <clears throat> excuse me, that the church then felt it was on solid ground to go forward and include Joseph Smith translation in the footnotes and in the appendices of the official LDS Bible, which was first published in 1979. Yeah, which is why when <clears throat> McConkie says, of course, it doesn't really make a lot of sense because the LDS church didn't have their hands on the original documents and doubted the RLDS church in terms of the integrity of the IV. Hence, when you say, of course, you're sort of insinuating it's been that way all along, and that's not reality. All right, next. Uh, this is Robert Millett, who's by, I just want to acknowledge up front, by no means is he a general authority or speak really on behalf of the church, other than he's been kind of the scholar that they've used probably more often than any scholar in terms of uh, associating him with church programs and having him be uh, the featured speaker in uh, arenas where scholarship is being talked about. Yes, uh, and he was another BYU professor, mm -hmm. and I, I think he was in the ancient scriptures department as well. And this is from a paper that he wrote for the same 1985 book that was published by BYU Religious um, uh, Study Center. Do you want to read this one, RFM? Sure. These were Robert found Millett. Anyway. I believe that as a divinely called translator and restorer, Joseph Smith also, number one, restored that which was once recorded but later removed intentionally. Or perhaps even, number two, reconstituted that which occurred or was said anciently but never recorded by the ancient arbiters. So it's basically his rephrasing what Joseph Smith said about his own translation that's in the heading to section 76. Robert Millet goes on to doubt either the prophet's intentions or abilities with regards to the Bible is to open the door unnecessarily to other questions relative to the books in the canon of scripture. Joseph, the translator of the Book of Mormon and the recipient of the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants was the same man called and empowered as a translator of the Bible. So Robert Millet is aware that there are people out there, even at the time in 1985, who are questioning Joseph Smith's 
translation as as actually restoring what was had in ancient manuscripts because they're looking and they can't find anything and the manuscripts that are available in 1985 are much more uh, extensive and vast than what was available back in the 1830s as you might imagine but it's not showing up the proof that we expected to have failed to materialize but what robert millet is saying in spite of that we have to hold on to this belief that he actually is restoring ancient texts because if we make it something less than that, then we are going to end up having an impact and a negative impact on the other scripture productions that Joseph Smith gave us, including the Book of Mormon. Right. If Joseph Smith told us he was restoring the Bible to a more ancient original form, and that's not what he was doing, and the evidence seems to indicate that's not what he was doing, then if we don't choose to continue to believe that, then we might compromise all of Joseph's translation work. Right. And he's absolutely right. I think he's spot on with his observation. Yeah. So Robert Millet there. Well, go ahead. I know we're going to go ahead and and, uh, nail this part down about the, the church's position on the Joseph Smith translation from Joseph Smith, at least up through 1985. Because believe it or not, folks, it's changing or has changed. And that's something we want to talk about tonight. But Thomas Wayman is a professor or was a professor in uh, ancient scriptures. And he made a remarkable discovery, which he published on a few years ago together with a, was it a graduate student who was also working on this? Was that Haley? Haley Lamont. Lamont. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Haley, Haley Lamont. And what it showed was that in the Joseph Smith translation, Joseph Smith at quite a number of points can be demonstrated to have been relying on the Adam Clock, the Adam Clark Bible commentary in making a lot of his revisions. So in other words, he's got the Adam Clark Bible commentary. He's making revisions to the Bible. And in a number of instances, it can be shown that he's depending upon what Adam Clark wrote, who was just a noted theologian. And he's a hugely popular and very thorough and multi-volume Bible commentary that all of a sudden what Adam Clark says starts showing up in the Joseph Smith translation in a number of instances. And yeah. that, that kind of rocked things. As the evidence comes out and shows that uh, everything about the JST almost, there's, I think, one exception, and it's really small and minute and really doesn't count almost, but the uh, far and wide majority of adaptations that Joseph Smith made as the Joseph Smith translation have no connection to ancient uh, Bible manuscripts. And in fact, maybe even stronger than that, seem to indicate something other than a restoring of the Bible to its ancient form, but seem to be modern changes to add meaning that has something to do with something going on contemporary to Joseph Smith. Right. Maven, did you have something you wanted to say? uh, I did just want to jump in. I don't know if this has to do kind of with what you were just saying. I'll just show this by uh, Donnie. Um, and he's uh, also from the RLDS, so he's, he's commenting about the inspired version, as they called it there. Um, but he wanted to know if you, men- if you mentioned that the, or will be, that the Dead Sea Scrolls manuscripts aren't supporting the JST uh, version. I guess we can get to that in a little bit. But I, but I actually wanted to come in and say, I just wanted to talk real quick about my mission and and just how, I mean, I took so much of the gospel, I took everything seriously in the gospel, and this was one of them. And so even though I did get frustrated sometimes at how um, 
the KJV sounded. I, I was one of those that I really dove in and dug in. So I really liked it. The language became really familiar to me um, as I went through seminary, as I studied on my own, plus institute, plus missionary work, right? Um, so to me, I liked it, and it was comforting, and I really genuinely felt that it was superior because of these teachings. I'm hearing, I'm listening to them, and I'm believing them when I hear them, right? So um, on my mission, it, it, it was so common for people to accuse us of changing the Bible. Of course, most of the time they were talking about the Book of Mormon, because they lacked a real understanding of the difference between the two um, or didn't think we used the, the, their Bible at all. And for me, it was almost a point of pride to be like, we use the King James Version, like this is the original one. Because I really did look at the NIV, as that's the one I saw the most commonly that other people were using as, you know, like I said, just as a deliberate mistranslations to try to, yeah, set up... Um, false beliefs that, you know, again, because all of Christianity is in apostasy, right? So I really saw the NIV as part of this ongoing apostasy that's supporting certain passages, you know, in order to support certain Protestants believing in, you know, the, the things that they did. And, and that's why. And even though it was worded better, I also saw that as part of like the devious plan of Satan to like make this Bible more popular by taking away the flowery, um, you know, more archaic English language and making it easier to understand for the average person than, you know, again, it's just Satan being very clever in figuring out how to get false doctrines over to, you know, the masses by a, a Bible that's easier to understand, but also more wrong. So, um, and not just that, but again, last thing, and then I'll, I'll let you guys keep going. Um, you know, when people would make that accusation, you guys changed the Bible, this or that, and I would ask them what they used, and it was the NIV, because it's new inspired version, or new international version, all right? I think that's what it's for, but the N is for new, yes? yes. Yeah, so I would always say, why is it new? Like, this was, uh, this was always, I thought, like, a great gotcha. Not that it ever actually made a difference for them, but I was just like, why, you know, why did it have to be new? Um, and why wouldn't that imply that things have, that your Bible has been changed? And uh, when they would say, no, it's, it's just to be made easier to understand, I was just like, okay, but you're saying, you're admitting things are being taken away and things are being added to your Bible in order to make it you know, supposedly more easy to understand who's really got a changed Bible here. And I just felt so dang superior about it. <laughs> so that's my story. I'll let you guys <laughs> keep going. Okay. And, and I'll just add, I mean, Robert Millet's right. The, the LDS truth claim was that Joseph Smith was restoring the lost parts of the Bible and uncorrupting the corrupted parts. And Millet's telling you that if, if we do something different, then then what Joseph Smith said, we risk compromising all of Joseph Smith's translation productions. Um, but as we've already shown probably in the last year more than anyone, that's that's happening anyway. So Right. And he says to doubt either the prophet's intentions, which means what the, what Joseph Smith said he was doing, mm -hmm. or his ability, his ability to do what he said he was doing, which was, I like the way you put it, uncorrupting the corrupted parts, restoring yeah. the parts that have been taken away, those plain and precious parts. By the way, you also need to know, if you don't already, that this is all in the Book of Mormon, particularly 1 Nephi chapter 13. And Robert Millet quotes from 1 Nephi 13 at length 
in his article. We didn't want to reproduce it here because it's in your in your Book of Mormon and you can look at it there. But the Book of Mormon goes on and on in that chapter mm -hmm. about how everything was hunky-dory at the beginning with the scriptures, the Book of the Jew. Remember how it talks about it? Uh, Book of the Jew, and then it goes, everything's great, everything's wonderful, it's all pure. And then it goes through the hands of the great and abominable church. And that's when they take away so many of these things that are precious and pure, and it causes many to stumble because now they've changed it. And that in the last days, guess what's going to happen? Those plain and precious parts that were taken out will be restored to the Bible. And that was what the Joseph Smith translation was supposed to accomplish. Yeah, I'll just throw it up here. I mean, you've got, you said First Nephi 13. Oh, yeah. So beheld a book, right? Mouth of a Jew. <clears throat> that's it. The book that proceeded oh. forth out of the mouth of a Jew. Yep. And which uh, they have taken away the gospel of the Lamb, many parts which are plain and precious, and also many covenants of the Lord have they taken away. This plays into the whole apostasy and restoration. This plays into uh, the LDS church is a restoration of the ancient church that Christ had built himself uh, in his last weeks and months of his life. Uh, so, and then, the, and then as you pointed out too, this, uh, these scriptures in Nephi also predict, they prophesy that at a future point, these things shall be restored. And that's part of this restoration. So it's not like Joseph Smith created a fabricated uh, idea about what he was doing. He was simply reiterating what the Book of Mormon had already told us, which is the Bible was corrupted, parts were lost, and at some future point, a.k.a. Joseph Smith and the Restoration, those things would get fixed. Right. And Joseph Smith was commanded by the Lord to commence his translation of the Bible the same year that the church was organized. It wasn't that much longer. After April 6th of 1830 that Joseph Smith gets his commandment, he gets right on the stick and starts his translation, which officially sort of takes a few years, maybe one, two, three years. It's done somewhere around the middle of 1833. He goes all the way through the Bible, makes all his changes, although he tampers with it and monkeys with it tinkers with it might be a nicer way to put it off and on up until the point he dies. Mm. Perfect. Okay. So then, um, Robert Millet, one more time. Uh, do you want to read that one too, RFM? Absolutely. The plain, here we go. He's referencing from first Nephi 13, the plain and precious missing parts have not yet been made known through manuscripts and scholars. Okay. What he's saying is there are no manuscripts that match these plain and precious missing parts that have been restored in the JST. Okay, but they are available only through the Book of Mormon, the Joseph Smith translation, and modern revelation through the instrumentality of a prophet. Yeah. So there you have it. Uh, over and over again, we're being told that one of the truth claims of this church is that the JST is a correction, uh, restoring of the Bible to ancient form, restoring lost parts restoring the sabotaging that uh, past unrighteous priest had done. Um, and then the KJV without the JST is the best English version of the Bible that we have, and we ought to stick to it. So we also have here, you mentioned Robert Matthews. Uh, yes, Robert in, J. Matthews. Please. Um, this was prophets in the in the Book of Mormon promised a restoration of the lost material because it is so vital to salvation. Do you want to read this one too? I'm only I'm only saying that because I know these were ones that you found and 
I thought you did a bunch of work behind the scenes to get these. And so I want to kind of I'm happy to Robert J. Matthews, uh, who was the godfather of JST studies in the mid to late 20th century. Of course, he wrote a paper for the book as well. That same book, 1985, that we had a picture of before. As the angel pointed out to Nephi in 1 Nephi 13, that the Bible has not come to us in its original completeness, its original completeness, and some things are lost from it. We should take special note, however, that not only do the scriptures speak of a loss, they also promise a return, a restoration of the lost material because it is so vital to salvation. Yeah. Yep. And so with that, these are the quotes that we found over the last week or so as we prepared for tonight's show. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, the next slide is going to tell us to do some of the sound bites. So sound bites on the JST. So the first thing I want to do is uh, go to some sound clips that have to do with Thomas Wayman on Gospel Tangents with Rick Bennett. And these first set of sound bites are going to talk about how Rick Bennett, uh, secondarily, Thomas Wayman primarily, feel and think and what the data says about the Joseph Smith translation. Here's the first one. Because it is one of those struggles. It kind of relates to the Book of Mormon. Is the Book of Mormon a translation or is it a revelation? Um, and and so the, the Joseph Smith translation, I mean, we use the word translation, and I think the implication is, well, you know, there were lost parts, and Joseph Smith is restoring that. But when you go back to these original Greek and Latin, that's not really what happened, right? It's not there. We don't have any any evidence for that, especially, you know, these bigger changes that he adds to the Bible. And then the other thing that's really challenging is there are things like forged verses in the Bible. So First John, the epistle 5-7, that's a known forgery. That's not a question that any of is us Is that the have. Trinity forgery? Yeah. We talked about that last yeah, time. The Gemini comma. And so he leaves that in, and that becomes problematic. And Gospel of Mark... Our manuscripts end at chapter 16, verse 8, but he leaves 9 through 20 in. And so you have to ask yourself in a fair way and not to be critical of it, to say, what is this thing? It's really not giving us the best manuscript tradition. It's giving us something else. And I think the problem, what was so hard for, for people to hear from me is that the work was initially characterized as me claiming that Joseph have plagiarized. And I, I don't I don't believe that in him for a minute. I don't think he sits down with a book and kind of creates the JST from it. But I, I think other people are talking about the Bible the same way he does in his day. They are changing order of verses, they're adding this word here to clarify. And those, those things are appearing in his translation of the of the Bible. Yeah. So I just want to know not only does not only does he say that the JST does not seem to be doing anything like restoring it to it, the original manuscripts but also Joseph Smith carries in tons of errors and mistakes or later uh, addendums to the gospels for instance that weren't there in the first place right and he also says other people were doing the same thing at his time. They were changing uh, words to try and make it clearer and reorganizing the chronology of verses, which is what 
Matthew 24 is famous for in the Joseph Smith translation, where he didn't change things so much as he reorganized the order of the verses in order to give it a different flavor as far as the predictions about the last days. That's the sermon, uh, the Olivet Sermon of Jesus, uh, the predictions about the last days and the signs of the times. So I thought that was interesting. But what he's also saying is, yeah, there's nothing there. And so now he's starting to get into this discussion, which we have heard so much of in recent years about, well, should we call it a translation, right? Okay, well, the one thing we know is, whatever you call it, Joseph Smith called it a translation. And he did yeah. it even in the, one of the passages, it was from section 76 and in the history of the church. That's the translation of the scriptures. We know it's not from one language to another. What we do know, and what now is going to start trying to be covered up, if I can use that expression, is that it was by Joseph Smith's own terms, his intentions, and what the church taught, even as recently as 1985 in that book from the Religious Studies Center, as recently as 1992 from the, um, the article on the Joseph Smith translation in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, where it is a restoration of what was had in ancient manuscripts. We just don't have the manuscripts anymore because we don't have the originals. And if we had those originals, we'd see Joseph Smith translation all over them. But now that we have so much access to so many manuscripts and that evidence is not materializing, now the definition of the Joseph Smith translation is going to be shifting from what Joseph Smith said it was and what other leaders of the church, including Bruce R. McConkie and other BYU professors, have said it is within my own membership in the church. Yeah, I hope Thomas Wayman does come on at a future point, because I think it would be really a good conversation for the audience to hear us talk about the way the church set it up and to go like, we were told by the Book of Mormon, we were told by Joseph Smith, and we were told by other leaders, authorities, and uh, church curriculum that Joseph Smith was restoring the Bible, and you acknowledge that doesn't seem to be what's happening. Um, also, if if the... Book of Mormon is the most correct book on earth and the Joseph Smith translation is God's, you know, opportunity to put all this back in order. Then Joseph Smith taking heirs and carrying them over doesn't seem to fit the church's doctrine or theology around that either. And then when he denies it being a plagiarism from Adam Clark's commentary, I would love I think he wants to frame it like a copy and paste, like the Joseph Smith translation is not all Adam Clark's commentary. None of us are making that claim. Rather, does Joseph Smith, without acknowledging such, when he frames it as a restoration to an ancient text, does he instead take significant parts out of someone else's work and utilize them in a production that he never claims is what it would have to be if he did that? Right. And I think what Thomas Wayman is saying, and he can clarify when we get him on the show, I think what he's saying is, look, I'm not saying that he plagiarized from the Adam Clark Bible commentary. I can show all of these different correspondences to things that are in the Bible commentary versus what ends up in the Joseph Smith translation. But he's not saying on that point, he's not saying, oh, Joseph Smith received this by direct revelation. And it's just a coincidence that a lot of these happen to show up in the Adam Clark Bible commentary. That's not what he's saying either. He's saying it's in the commentary. This is the, the second great awakening. Everybody's talking about these issues. Lots of people are doing their own kind of updates on the, the King James Version in order to correct it, to reorganize verses. Joseph Smith is doing this. This is in the air. And he's, he's aware of these ideas about the Bible from his environment, whether it's directly from 
the Adam Clark commentary or not, but that's where those ideas come from to Joseph Smith that end up being put into his translation of the Bible. Yeah. And in the legal sense of the term, when you take someone else's work and use it as if it is your own, even if you don't copy and paste and you don't give credit to that person, it is plagiarism. Right? I'm not sure. If I take someone else's idea and yeah. pretend it's my own, yeah, that seem and don't give any credit, and I go forward and go, I restored the Bible. Look, everybody. Mm-hmm. That seems to be something on the side of not exactly ethical. I think it's always. I the best I agree. Okay. I just I know I'm just jumping in like well I just just from this is the something you really have to be careful of when you're in school because plagiarism is taken very very seriously and so yeah if you even if you reword things a little bit if the if the central idea if it can be easily recognizable as coming from a book or a, or a paper that's been gone over in class and you don't even at least give it a footnote that this is where the idea comes from or or mention the author even if it's not a direct copy and paste it can still fall under plagiarism. So I just wanted to jump in with my personal experience. That is how I understood it in college. It was something to be very, very careful about in writing papers. Oh yeah, yeah you're supposed to definitely be very, very careful about it. It's my perspective though, that when we bring up terms like plagiarism, what it does is it gives the other side of the argument a chance to have a side argument about what plagiarism means. Yeah. And so we can avoid that by not using the term plagiarism because it has a whole lot of baggage. And that's what Professor Wayman is trying to get rid of. He's saying, when I wrote that article, you know, people started accusing me of saying Joseph Smith was a plagiarist when I didn't say that. I'm just saying that a lot of the concepts that show up in the, the Adam Clark commentary, which was totally available to Joseph Smith, we know he had one and access to one, um, show up in the Joseph Smith translation. So he's trying to say it without saying it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because obviously you can't say Joseph Smith is a plagiarist. By the way, I'm not saying, oh, what is Dan Vogel saying? It would yeah. not be considered plagiarism in Joseph Smith's day. Okay, thank you. So, Bill, you've got Maven on your side. I've got Dan Vogel on my side. I, I'll, then you probably win. You no win. offense, Maven, I think that means you win, Dan though. kicks both of our booties. So. No, that means you <laughs> yeah. win. Because you got Maven. All I got is Dan Vogel. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, so that's what he's trying to say, I think, Mr. Uh, Professor Wayman. But after he published that paper... Just a few years ago, by the way, uh, Bill, you should get credit. I want to bring it up again that you scored the first interview with Haley Wilson Lamont. Right? Go ahead. I'm going to pause. Sorry. I wanted to pause it so it could load up. Okay. Go ahead, my friend. You scored the first interview with her mm -hmm. or anybody on this subject mm -hmm. because it had been published, but you got an interview with her shortly before she graduated only on the condition that you not release that interview until she had graduated and had received her diploma mm -hmm. because it was the discovery of this. And she was largely responsible for making this discovery. Um, she left the church. Yeah, I should say that while Thomas Wayman would want to frame it as this shouldn't bother anybody. And I'm not saying that anything malicious happened here. Right. And I think there's still inspired ways to see all of this. Uh, it should be noted that his co-researcher on this project, Haley, uh, uh, Haley Lamont, uh, lost her testimony over this issue and left the church. 
Yes, and though I'm not saying anything about causation, I do have to make the observation that Professor Thomas Weymouth was a professor in the religion department at the time of this research and the publication of the paper. Mm -hmm. And after it was published, he was removed as a professor from the religion department, and he got put as a professor in the classics department where he works now. Mm. That is interesting, isn't it? It may be. It's suggestive. It is. And, and we've seen things like this before, where people speak up and tell the academic truth and end up playing different roles than where they were before, a.k.a. Leonard Arrington. Right. And it is possible that the church felt like um, they didn't want him to have the gravitas of being a religion professor mm -hmm. or a professor in the ancient scriptures department to back this up. So we'll put him over here in classics, which really has nothing to do with the Joseph Smith translation. And that's the problem. It has nothing to do with the Joseph Smith translation. If, if the Joseph Smith translation were actually a restoration of what was really on the ancient manuscripts in the Greek, the Latin, the Hebrew, classics would be the perfect department to show it. Yeah. Yep. You nailed it. Um, all right. So here's soundbite uh, number two. Is translation the right word? Should we be using another word? Maybe. I mean, Maybe. I know Midrash has been thrown around. I don't know if that's a perfect word either. It's not. I don't think any of the these words are the ideal words because he's not sitting down with Greek and creating English. This is English to English, so a conversion might be a way. Conversion. Um, what the heck is that? He doesn't want to call it a translation. Now, again, Joseph Smith called it a translation. Joseph Smith claimed that by revelation, he was restoring the document to an ancient manuscript. Thomas Wayman says that's not only is that not happening but it is not a translation uh, at all. God uh, called it be a translation. Else. Rick Bennett calls it Midrash, RFM. What is Midrash, by the way? I think Midrash was um, the process by which many Jewish scholars, uh, a lot of rabbis, gave their ideas and commentary on the Hebrew scriptures over a period of many, many, many years and decades and probably even centuries and got collected over time. Those that were thought to be insightful, they get collected into the Midrash, which are stories about the scriptures. So not actual scripture, more right. of like pseudopigrapha sort of, right? Like creating not context in extra, uh, extra stories around. For instance, um, uh, I, I'm going to fail at this because the one that comes to mind is like some of the Apocrypha talks about and some of the other uh, scriptures that were new testament related talk about jesus when he was growing up for instance and he killed a bird and then he then he healed it suddenly different yeah similar but different in that uh pseudepigrapha is where you're actually pretending to be a historical and authoritative figure or writing in that person's name in order to give your views greater weight so that they will be accepted so that's typically what pseudepigrapha means it means fake writing false writing and the falseness has to do with the, the person who's claiming to write it. But the um, Midrash, Midrashim, as I understand it, isn't that. It's just Rabbi so-and-so, Rabbi Eliezer, or Rabbi so-and-so gave this particular comment or insight into this story or passage from the Old Testament. So it would be much more of a commentary, the Midrash is. 
And that will that word, I'm glad you said that, because that mm. word will come into play several times as we move forward through this conversation. So Midrash is an ancient commentary about Scripture, but isn't Scripture itself. And Bonma Martin makes an observation there, Bill. You notice that? Yeah, but Brad Wilcox scored a position in ancient Scripture with zero qualifications. Zero. Ta-da. Now, when you say zero, of course, you mean zero academic qualifications. He does have the single most important qualification, which is a slavish obedience to the leaders of the church. Being church broke, as they say. Oh, yeah. Okay, um, I'm going to do this a different way. So here should be number uh, three. Brokeback Wilcox. (laughs) There we go. Here it is. Let's see if this plays better. Oh, you probably... You oop, probably can't hear that, or you could. It was probably across my microphone. So let me do something else here. Stop. What does it say under his name? Screen. Uh, T.W. Fluid. So it's Thomas Wayman, and then Maven put a keyword with each video clip so we would know which order to play them in. Oh, I meant on, on the Gospel Tangents interview where they have his name. Oh, they have uh, let me, does yeah, it let say me look here. Of Share screen. Entire screen. We're going to play system audio. And then let me turn this on to the roadcaster. And let's see if this works. Add to stream. All right. So this was Maven put three fluid because the question's about how fluid are is the Joseph Smith translation of the KJV, uh, Joseph Smith. But here's the soundbite. Let's give me a thumbs up if it plays good. I cannot hear it at all. Okay. Then let's... um, You would have found that out sooner, except I was muted when I was saying it the first time. No, no sweat. So I'm going to try this one more time. If not, we'll just play it the old way with it kind of buffering a little bit here and there. The old-fashioned way. Yeah. Uh, Share screen. I earned Higher screen. Share audio. Let's try this one more time. I'll move this back. Okay. Even those words are hard to know which one he would characterize it as okay i could easily see him later saying ah i would have done that verse differently had i you know known what i know now kind of thing like if you were working on it in say 1830 43 or 44 rather than earlier so i i it's my sense that it's a uh, ever-changing for him he he gives late sermons where he comments on the bible in ways that are different than the jst that he did in 1831 now, while I agree with what Professor Wayman says in this clip, in every detail, that is not what Joseph Smith claimed to be doing, and it's not what the church claimed he was doing as recently as the 1990s and 1980s, as we have previously established. You can't be restoring what was originally on the manuscript and have it change thereafter based upon new things that you're learning. Those two things don't go together. Right. I, I just, I only want to say here, uh, I'm going to try to queue up the next one, but um, that Joseph would have, if he did it years later, he would have done something really different. Um, that that certain things he said earlier, he corrects them later on. It really seems to describe a person who's winging it rather than a person who's talking to God and from God's lips to his ears mm. is the way things are. Right. God is not involved in communicating things to Joseph Smith. 
at least not if we're going to presume that God is going to give him the straight scoop at the outset and it's not going to need to be changed later based upon new things that Joseph Smith learns. Why doesn't God just give him the correct understanding at the beginning? This starts to look very much like it is a production that Joseph Smith put together. In fact, that's basically what Professor Wayman is saying. Joseph yeah. Smith put it together based upon his own ideas, and his own ideas were evolving, so he might change things in the same verse. Over time, as his ideas evolve and as his theology changes, then his approach to these verses and changing them in the Joseph Smith translation, and there are instances of that, is also going to change to accommodate his new understanding. Yeah. Here's the next soundbite. This talks about things in Joseph Smith's uh, milieu. 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 And I think he's part of his day. I think he's being influenced by things he's read, heard, thought about, prayed about. Um, and, and it's influenced his view of the Bible. So rather than it being a revelation from God's lips to his ears, it is Joseph Smith giving a commentary using things from his milieu. Yes. Hmm. And of course, the problem with that is that it's, it's indistinguishable from Joseph Smith just making this up as he goes along. Yeah, it, it's, it's another, huh, it's another issue where the church has watered it down or its scholars have watered it down to being indiscernible from a fraud. Right. It looks okay. exactly the same. <laughs> oh. You and I were talking today when we were on the phone that, man, the Mormonism of the 80s and 90s was rocking. We, it man, was I exciting. It. I, that's why it I love the Joseph Smith. Nobody gives a crap about the Joseph Smith translation if all it is is a commentary. Why is it yeah. in our Bible? Why, is there, why are there footnotes? Why, are they, why is it in the Pearl of Great Price? As I think most people know, the book of Moses is the first several chapters of the book of Genesis, the Joseph Smith translation. I think most people know that also in the Pearl of Great Price, the Joseph Smith Matthew is Matthew 24 from the Joseph Smith translation. So it's in the Pearl of Great Price. It's in the Bible. It's in the appendix. It's everywhere you want to be. And now all of a sudden we start, or we start to be told a different story, I should say, which is that it's just Joseph Smith's evolving ideas about the scriptures. Yeah. And then we go to the next sound clip, which is one you found from uh, the young folks at Saints Unscripted, including a good uh, a good friend of ours. Yeah, this is from four years ago. You can tell it's a bit old because Kwaku's still there. This is before he got booted. Right, wrong, or indifferent, he didn't last there. So they, they took him out, but he's still there. But it's really this other, um, this lady or sister gal who's also there, who's doing most of the talking in the clips that I was interested in. Because here... They're giving the new and improved understanding of the Joseph Smith translation, which really is, it's just a commentary. It's not a big deal. We're going to water it down till it's virtually meaningless. Yeah. So here is uh, Saints Unscripted. First, I'm not going to say, all right, take out your Joseph Smith translations of the Bible and open to Matthew 5, right? That's not what's going to happen. Right. Um, it's but, kind of like that reminds me when you're saying that it reminds me of like when you hear um, apostles in general conference giving personal like interpretations or their what they feel about scriptures. 
it's just like that. It's just like reading scriptures and then reading one of our apostles talks from general conference side by side. That's like pretty much what it is. It, yeah. it could probably be better described as Joseph Smith commentary on the yeah. Bible. It's essentially like having Joseph Smith in And that's your what some BYU professors call it. Right. Joseph Smith's commentary. Which is cool. Yeah, but it's cool. It's cool, but it's meaningless. I don't care what Joseph Smith has, his personal ideas about the scriptures, especially when they are continuing to evolve over time. I mean, I do, I do appreciate them. They certainly have historical value in getting a bead on what Joseph Smith is thinking and where he's coming from at different points in his ministry. But it has nothing to do with finding out what the, the truth is of things. We, there's, another pas there's another passage, another clip here, but I also want to bring this up. I've already mentioned that the book of Moses is the Joseph Smith translation of the first few chapters of Genesis. I start to feel like I'm sounding like William Shatner here as I speak. But anyway, um, but no, it's not just his ideas. All of Moses chapter one is an addition to the beginning of the Old Testament. That's all pure addition. There's two entire lengthy chapters, and I think it's six and seven, which is a, a book of Enoch, which is created by Joseph Smith. These are not just Joseph Smith's ideas. This is a restoration of scripture. We've got a conversation between God and Moses in chapter one. In fact, one of the most quoted verses in Mormonism is, behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. That's God talking to Moses. No, 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 that's just Joseph Smith commentary. Oh, you're right. This is just what Joseph Smith was thinking. You're and right. not only does she throw the Joseph Smith translation under the bus, because it's just it's just like a general conference where an apostle just gives up and just gets up and just shares his thoughts on a scripture. Oh, yeah. Like also the apostle words are just a commentary. They're also of not much value either. I know she throws everybody under the bus yeah. and this is not just some random podcast. This isn't Mormonism live, right? This is saints unscripted, which is funded. I mean, they're not saying things that are different than what the church wants them to say. Is that fair and to as say? As you pointed out, this isn't their research. This is a produced show. Unlike us, where right. we go off for a week and do all the hard work and come back on and put this all together, yeah. these kids don't know this much about the church. They have people behind the scenes who are writing cards of script that they're reading from, or uh, and there's heavy production going into these. But mm -hmm. who are you going to say they were funded by? Well, the More Good Foundation, who is funded, funded by the by? LDS Church. Yeah. This so, is the church's non-official program to its youth. For the kids, yes. By the way, if you want to go back and play that last clip, you'll actually see Kwaku reading off the card. And he's not his eyes go back and forth. You can see he's reading off the card. And Let then if you want to read, do that one and then go to the second clip, which is where uh, this gal, whose name I'm not sure of, but she's the one who made the comment before is really going to double down on the same idea about discounting the importance or the nature of the Joseph Smith translation. Let's see if we can see, see if you uh, can Kwaku see it. reading off the card. You don't ever, if you go to an LDS service, they're not going to say, all right, take out your Joseph Smith translations of the can Bible. Can you see that? They open to Matthew 5, right? His That's eyes going left happen. to right. right. Um, yeah. yeah. It's but, kind of like, that reminds me when you're saying that, it reminds me of like when you hear um, apostles in general conference giving personal like interpretations or their, what they feel about scriptures. 
it's just like that. It's just like reading scriptures like and then that. reading one of our apostles' talks from general conference side by side. That's like pretty much what it is. It, yeah, it's pretty much what it is. Described as Joseph Smith commentary on the yeah. Bible. It's essentially like having Joseph Smith in And that's your what some BYU professors call it. Right. Joseph Smith's commentary. Which is cool. And the reason they call it Joseph Smith's commentary is because in spite of what the church told us or what Joseph Smith told us or what Bruce R. McConkie told us or what Robert Millet told us is that it doesn't turn out to actually be what any of them said. Hence, we need a secondary explanation. Right. And the secondary hmm. explanation is always less faith promoting than the original explanation. What they're doing to the JST, they've already done to the Book of Abraham, and they will shortly, I predict, will be doing to the Book of Mormon. Because as these dominoes go, this is my domino theory. As the Book of Abraham and the Joseph Smith translation goes, so will the Book of Mormon follow. Yeah. It's all pseudopigrapha, as Richard Bushman. It's all Joseph Smith just responding to his ideas and what he thinks and what's in his milieu. I keep looking at the camera because I'm working on my pronunciation of that word. Milieu, I think, is correct. I've yeah. been saying it wrong for so long, and Martine was nice enough to smack me over the head and correct me a number of times. Well, Let me know if I got it right now, Martine. You've got to create a little bit of deniable plausibility, so. Yes. <laughs> okay, here's the, uh, here's the next clip from Here we go. Saints yes, Unscripted. Double down, please. Tell us what if the Joseph Smith translation is. Just in case they made a mistake the first time calling it a commentary, let's just give them a chance to correct the record. Um, they, I mean, you should obviously really appreciate what Joseph Smith gave us with the Joseph Smith translations, but remember it's not canonized for a reason. A lot of it really is just Joseph Smith's commentary, his notes, his thoughts. It's like reading his study journal that he was keeping as he was reading the Bible, which we should, should definitely reference it. We should definitely read it, but remember it's not canonized. Um, so it's not technically scripture and we don't know if he like fully completed it. Um, so just throwing that out there too. Like there and, were and there a lot were, of good changes. There were some times where he would like, he'd make a note or whatever, and he'd kind of look at it and he'd be like, eh, I probably could have written this a little better if I spent more time on it, but it's sufficient for, for my needs right now. <laughs> I can't believe they said that, but it's, it's really not that important. It's not official. So, you know, you can study it if you want, you probably should, but not a big deal. I know if you can go back to the beginning of that, just just briefly, because I remember from, I think it was the first season of Game of Thrones, when um, I hadn't planned on saying this. Gosh, who's the guy? You know, the main guy who gets his head cut off at the end of the first season. Sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> that, uh, you know, the father. What, is it Ned? Oh, Ned. Ned? Ned. Um, is it? I actually haven't watched, but I think that's what it is. Stark. I think you're right. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> someone in the talking, someone in the he's channel. talking with the king, right? Because they were friends, and so he's talking with the king, and he's going, "Everything that precedes the word but in a sentence is bullshit." Okay, let's. Uh, and I'm just quoting from the show. Everything that precedes the word but in a sentence is bullshit. That's because the king has just told him all these nice things about himself, and then he says, "But." And he says, okay, everything that comes before but in a sentence is bullshit. Because that, now after you say but, now you're going to get to your real point. Notice how Game of Thrones helps us understand what's going on with Saints Unscripted, Saints Unscripted right here. Um, they, I mean, you should obviously really appreciate what Joseph Smith gave us with the Joseph Smith translations. But, but. Canonized for a reason. A lot of it really is just Joseph Smith's commentary, his notes, his thoughts. It's like reading his study journal. That and that's fine. We've already, we've already heard that before. I was just talking about the but part. By the way, it is in our canonized scriptures. 
It is in the official LDS Bible from 1979. Oops, it's it's in the footnotes. It's also in the glossary or appendix, whatever, for the longer portions. It is, uh, I mean, if you, want, if you want to say, okay, it's not canonized, but Bruce R. McConkie, who spoke for an entire generation of Latter-day Saints in the church, said, yes, of course, remember the, the of course comments where he says, of course, we should study it and teach from it. This is something that is accepted. And my experience in the church is probably not different from yours or different from anybody else's, but when you're going through the Bible in Sunday school or whatever, and you're going along as a teacher, and somebody comes in there and says, oh, but look at the Joseph Smith translation. The Joseph Smith translation is not looked at as a study note from Joseph no. Smith. It's not just sort of what he's thinking at the time. This becomes the super scripture. This trumps everything else. This is the real interpretation. This is the real understanding. And this is what was really on those original manuscripts at, before it got corrupted. Yeah. Has that been your experience, Bill? It has been exactly that. In fact, um, it, when I went into Sunday school, as you pointed out, it's the trump card that somebody pulls out. If you say something and there's any sort of debate, if there's that one scholar in the room that goes, guys, actually, we can just go to the Joseph Smith translation and that solves the problem. These aren't study notes, as you point out, no matter what she says, no matter what the other guy on the other side there said about it being commentary in the first clip and what she said about it being commentary in the second. That's not how it was framed to us. The church makes truth claims, and those truth claims aren't holding up. And so they're now having to create secondary explanations that are indiscernible from a fraud. Right. Yeah. And it's this not very was, impressive uh, now. It's not exciting. Well, it's no. not full of wonder like it was in an adventure to be a member of the church like it was when I joined the church. And I joined the church at a really propitious time. I'm baptized at the end of June of 1978 and of course the priesthood band had just been lifted even though the missionaries somehow didn't mention that to me in the discussions but it's also at this time when they are creating the official lds version of the bible which they had never had before they were using the um the cambridge edition so they're creating their own they've now gotten the joseph smith translation they're putting it in the footnotes throughout the old and new testament and everything else that we've already talked about and then it gets published so Please don't piss on me and tell me it's raining. Don't yeah. tell me that this is not canonized. Technically, you're correct. But technically, I'm correct that it has been canonized in the Pearl of Great Price, in the Book of Moses, and in Joseph Smith Matthew. So For there. behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Right? Right. For behold, this is my work and my glory to put down some random thoughts that I'm thinking as I'm working my way through the scriptures, which has nothing to do with anything he's reading in the scriptures. This is an entire prologue yeah. to Genesis chapter one. And there's different things that come out, but the main overarching reason that I get from this prologue is to answer the question as to how it was that Moses knew all this crap about the creation. How did he know about the creation and how it happened? Because people are saying, well, these are oral stories that are handed down from generation to generation, and Moses just took them and wrote them down. No. What Moses chapter 1 says is, we can rely on what Moses said in the creation accounts because he received it by a direct revelation and vision from God. And that's what Moses chapter 1 tells us to set up the intro to the creation account, which begins in what we have as Genesis chapter 1, but Moses chapter 2. 
for the believers who might be watching the, you know, 30 of them that'll see this, right? The, for the believers who are watching, notice how easy it is to get off track. If we are going to start setting up the truth claim in Mormonism to get away from what it used to be, and the new truth claim is that Joseph Smith at times is adding in his own thoughts in the mouths of ancient prophets. And in other times, he's giving us what the ancient prophets said. Until somebody can explain clearly how we can differentiate between the two, then you're left dazed and confused. Absolutely. And one of the things that's going to be coming more and more to the front is that this observation about Joseph Smith relying on Bible commentaries of his day and things that are in the air about the Bible is not restricted to his Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, but we also find them in his translation of the Book of Mormon. And hell's going to be to pay for that. Yeah, That's what I mean when I say the Book of Mormon is going to follow suit. It is going to stop being a translation. And as you've already mentioned, they're already starting to use the word revelation yeah. for the Book of Mormon because it's going to go down the same path and have to be divorced from the gold plates and what was inscribed on them. No longer is it really going to be a translation from Reformed Egyptian into English. It's going to be some kind of revelation that God beamed down into Joseph Smith's head, which may or may not have had any relationship to what was written on the gold plates, covered by the napkin, maybe in the other room. It feels as though the church and all of us connected to it in some way are having to, in this very moment, 2023, 2013, let's start with the essays when they started to come out, up till now and, and whatever, another decade or two, three in the future, we're all having to come to grips with the fact that nothing that this church held up as its truth claims in fact, do hold up, and every single truth claim is having to be rewritten in ways that sides with the critic on the data and formulates a new narrative that, uh, as we pointed out, is indiscernible from a fraud, but by which all of us have to collectively go, we don't know where to draw the line between what God's telling Joseph Smith and what he's making up himself. Yeah, it's a bad position to be in because when you're looking at Joseph Smith and his translations and saying when is he talking, when is he translating as a man, and when is he translating as a prophet, there's no way to know. And, I think I know that, the answer to that. I think he's always translating as a man. Yeah, but you can't. I mean, once you open that Pandora's box, then where do you end? Except not being able to rely on anything that Joseph Smith translated as authoritatively representing revelation from God and the truth of things that leads to eternal life. Yeah. And in fact, the church's best position is that at times he's translating as a prophet and at times he's adding his own point of view. But we all ought to recognize that the data in almost all instances seems to indicate that Joseph Smith is making it up as he goes along. Right. Yeah. Okay. Let's, uh, let's continue on here. So, um, I was just going to add while you're putting that please. up, that it's very important that we do this episode. I'm glad you thought of doing it because if you're 20 years old or 30 years old in the church and you haven't gone back and read all this stuff, you've got no way of knowing that you are currently being gaslit on what it is that the Joseph Smith translation is. And I say gaslit only to the extent that the church and its auxiliaries, 
is representing this new theory of a commentary without telling anybody that this is 180 degrees different from what they were telling the church as recently as 30 and 40 years ago. Right. Yep, totally. So I went back into my Book of Mormon study guide, uh, Student Manual, Religion 121-122, 1 Nephi 13-28. The prophet Joseph Smith said, I believe the Bible as it is read when it came from the pen of the original writers. We already read this quote, but I just want to note that it's in the Book of Mormon Student Manual uh, for the for the church in its BYU education, right? Uh, came from the pen of the original writers, ignorant translators. By the way, we're noting wait, Thomas Wayment. And to some extent, saints unscripted are sort of noting that Joseph Smith himself is probably an ignorant translator, right? The careless transcribers, whatever, again, Thomas Wayman said, heirs made its way back into the Joseph Smith translation. So on some level, the Joseph Smith as the translator and the scribes writing it down were also careless transcribers. And notice if we start to place any sort of maliciousness in the motivation of Joseph Smith, that he's intentionally carrying out a fraud on people, then he also fits into the category of designing and corrupt priests have committed many errors. Joseph Smith may himself, based on the data, fit into all three and be speaking of himself not knowing it or knowing it. Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible helped restore many of the plain and precious things which were lost. There's the church telling you the old truth claim. It wasn't just a commentary. Uh, and then also 1 Nephi 1339, other, other books, these last records were to come forth to bear witness of the book of the Lamb of God, which is the Bible, are the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the revelations of the Lord to the Joseph Smith, Lord to Joseph Smith. So what they're saying there is that we were told in the scriptures that the last records would come forth and they would bear testimony of the Bible. And uh, that is the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine of Covenants, and what they're saying at the end there is the Joseph Smith translation. And then you found a, a really cool thing. Talk about this for a moment. Um, okay, I, I'm going to give a little background on this because back in the day, back in the 1970s and 1980s, when the Joseph Smith translation was taught as being what Joseph Smith said it was and what the Book of Mormon says it was. By the way, if you water down the Joseph Smith translation, you're also watering down the Book of Mormon, specifically 1 Nephi 13, because now that's not meaning what it says anymore, or you're going to have to put a radical and much less interesting interpretation on it. So that's another thing where the, the, um, the Book of Mormon does not escape calumny in this regard with changing the ideas about what the Joseph Smith translation is. But there were always two things, as a former apologist, I can tell you there were two things about the Book of Mormon or about the Joseph Smith translation, which we trumpeted in the church in apologetic circles as being something that is not in the Bible, the King James Bible, but is reflected in other manuscripts. And the first one was Isaiah 2.16, which gets redone in 2 Nephi 12.16. All right. And let's go ahead since you've got this up here. The main thing is this. Isaiah 2.16 says, And upon all the ships of Tarshish, Tarshish, which I think might be Spain, uh, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures. And then 2 Nephi 12.16, which is the same verse, except it's in the Book of Mormon, so it's from the brass plates. 
adds a clause. It says, and upon all the ships of the sea, notice that that clause is not in Isaiah 2.16. And then it goes back to Isaiah 2.16 language when it says, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures. So 2 Nephi 12.16 has a phrase that is not contained in Isaiah 2.16, and that phrase is, and upon all the ships of the sea. So, one of the great apologetics that we had to show that Joseph Smith really was onto something and really was restoring what had been had anciently in other texts is that in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, made, uh, I think it's 200, 300 years BCE, for the largely Hellenized Greek population and scattered uh, throughout the, the, the world so that they could have something they could read in Greek. In the Greek translation, they don't have, as it has in Isaiah 2.16, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures. Instead, the Septuagint has, and upon all the ships of the sea, and upon all pleasant pictures. So the argument was, and still is in some quarters, though I think it's been largely debunked by now, and thereby hangs the tail, we'll get to that in a minute, is that what the, it's not the Joseph Smith translation, and this is key, it's what the Book of Mormon does, is the Book of Mormon in Third Nephi, excuse me, Second Nephi, when it's recapitulating this Isaiah passage, the argument is, is that somehow Joseph Smith in doing this restores a passage that is not in his Old Testament, but is in the Septuagint, which he probably did not have access to, probably couldn't have read, even if he did have access to it. And so this was looked at as a divine, or an evidence of the divine translation of the Book of Mormon and how it's actually restoring what was originally there, with the presumption that what was originally there had all three clauses in it. It had upon all ships of Tarshish, it had all pleasant pictures, and it had all ships of the sea. And then the Masoretic text, which is what the King James translators had for the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, only ends up with two of those, two of those clauses. The Septuagint has two clauses, and it gets put together like this in the Book of Mormon. So it has all three clauses that are reflected. This was such a huge evidence for the Book of Mormon that it made its way into the footnotes of the LDS Book of Mormon, which was published in 1981, I think it was. 79 was the Bible. 81 was the, um, the triple combination, the new edition that the, the church put forward of that. It's in the footnotes. You are not going to find any other apologetic item in the footnotes, to my knowledge, in any of the scriptures. But this is how important this was to the church at the time. And so 16a in Isaiah, it says Isaiah 2, 16. Here's the footnote. The Greek Septuagint has ships of the sea. The Hebrew has ships of Tarshish. The Book of Mormon has both, showing that the brass plates had lost neither phrase. And you almost need that whole explication I gave of it that took like five minutes before you can even understand this footnote, don't you? So they are relying on it to the extent that they're putting it in the footnote. They are committed to this. And they have a similar footnote, though perhaps not even quite as clear, in 2 Nephi chapter 12, 16, the corresponding passage in the Book of Mormon, where under 16a there, the footnote, it says, the Greek Septuagint 
version has one phrase that the Hebrew does not. And the Hebrew has one phrase that the Greek does not. But 2 Nephi 12.16 has both. And then it has a couple of other scriptural references that have nothing to do with the apologetic. But those are just cross-references to other scriptures that might have something to do with the same idea. So that's how important it was. Now, the, the second one, and I can, if I can just say this really quick, the second one, which was so important to me, came from the New Testament. And it came from the Joseph Smith translation, as well as the Book of Mormon, where Jesus in Matthew 5.22 is talking about that you should not be angry with your brother without a cause. What Joseph Smith did in the Book of Mormon and in his JST was he removed the clause without a cause. So it no longer says, if you are angry with your brother without a cause, then you'll be in danger of, you know, the torment or the judgment or whatever it is. He took out without a cause because the idea was there is no cause that's sufficient to justify your being angry with your brother. So that was removed and that is reflected in other ancient manuscripts. That appears to have been something that actually was not there in the ancient manuscripts and may have been added later on, perhaps in order to justify people who thought that's too strict. We need to have without a cause in there. But that actually does reflect the original manuscript by taking out what uh, the clause of without a cause from Matthew 5.22. And once again, it's reflected in 3 Nephi 12.22. Yeah, that's what it would be. That's what corresponds to it. And in the Joseph Smith translation. Those were huge. Now, the problem is, is that I think it was in 2015, Ron Huggins wrote an article in which he addressed both of these issues, both of these huge proofs that Joseph Smith knew what he, he was actually restoring stuff that was in original manuscripts. And he blows it up. And this is in his article, which was published in Dialogue. It was 2003, excuse me. It's titled, Without a Cause and Ships of Tarshish, a possible contemporary source for two unexplained readings from Joseph Smith, Ronald V. Huggins. So now you can understand why it has such a weird sounding title because he's going to show that both of those changes that Joseph Smith made in the Book of Mormon and one of them in the JST, they do reflect what's in ancient manuscripts, but they were also talked about in Bible commentaries in Joseph Smith's day. And so here's what he says. Writers like, this is um, Ron Huggins in his article, writers like Terrell Givens, and there he's responding specifically to Terrell Givens in his book, By the Hand of Mormon, where he puts at least one of these forward as an evidence of the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Writers like Terrell Givens, John A. Twetness, and John W. Welch have been too quick to deny that Joseph Smith could have known what anybody with religious curiosity might have known in his day. Smith's renderings of these verses do, however, raise the question of how he came to them. The best answer seems to be, because obviously, either he got it from God, and it's a remarkable evidence of his prophetic ability, or he found it out through some other means, which doesn't involve God or any kind of miracle. According to Ron Huggins, the best answer seems to be that he learned of them while interacting with Emma Smith's Methodist relatives. They are, in fact, just the kind of changes one might expect to find given such a context. 
The most immediate source that might be suggested for both readings is Wesley's explanatory notes on the Old and New Testament, because both of them are found there. It is also possible that Joseph learned of them indirectly from Luther's German Bible through the mediation of the Whitmer family, because they were German. Or perhaps he learned of them from one and had them reinforced by the other. But his paper documents where both of these changes show up in commentaries that were available to Joseph Smith in more than one source. So what he's saying is, what's more likely? That Joseph Smith got it from commentaries to which he had access, or that it was given to him by God? And I think he applies Occam's razor and comes down on the former instead of the latter. But what this ended up doing, at least for me, when I read this back in 2003, I mean, this was hugely disappointing to me. I'm going through my own process. I'm going through my own journey. This is 2003, and I've just had two ironclad evidences of Joseph Smith's prophetic abilities blown completely out of the water by this article by Ron Huggins. And once those two go, those were the two main ones. There wasn't a whole lot else. Once those two go by the wayside, what else is left? Because there's nothing in any of the ancient manuscripts now that supports what Joseph Smith said. I mean, it is in the ancient manuscripts in these two instances, but it's also in contemporary Bible commentaries of Joseph Smith's day. There's nothing that Joseph Smith puts into the Joseph Smith translation, I'll put it a different way, that is reflected in the ancient manuscripts and was not available to Joseph Smith in commentaries to which he had access. So now, yeah. because of that, it's becoming a commentary. Because of that, it's becoming just study notes that Joseph Smith put together. Because of that, it's being downplayed to the extent that it is by Thomas Weymouth, who I think is just being trying to be accurate, but especially by the um, Saints Unscripted crew. Yeah, um, I'm thinking of other things in Mormonism, you know, the canopic jars and all the misses in the book of Abraham. And th there's so many instances right now where this is happening. And we've covered a bunch of those in the last year or two. Um, I want to put up this comment too. Ray uh, said this, we should note God is telling Joseph Smith that the work he's doing with the Bible is a translation. DNC mm -hmm. 37.1, behold, I say unto you, it is not expedient in me that you should translate any more until you shall go to the Ohio and this because of the enemy and for your sakes. This is regarding, I believe, the Bible translation. It is. And hence, God is telling Joseph Smith that what you're doing is a work of translation. In other words, if the church wants to move it to something else, that's fine. But God himself gave us this language. And you're also... I understand the risk and reward of going down the track you are, but there, but at least one of the risks is that you're taking God's words and deeming them no longer the correct language. And that also has risk to it. If you take that to its logical end. Right. And I wanted to make this uh, tie this bow on the end of the book of Mormon, because what we've seen in this article from Ron Huggins, and I certainly recommend it to everybody to read it. You can find it on the internet. If you type in Ronald V. Huggins and the title of this, this article, which is up there on the screen, in Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, 2003, one of those has to do with the Joseph Smith translation and the Book of Mormon. That's the one without a cause. The other one has nothing to do with the Joseph Smith translation 
and only with the Book of Mormon, I believe, which is the ships of Tarshish. So Thomas Wayman's article about Joseph Smith's reliance on Bible commentaries of his day in coming up with the Joseph Smith translation is more and more looking like exactly what it was he did in some parts of the Book of Mormon as well. Yeah. Yep. And then um, I know we talked about doing a part two, but I think we actually could knock out these sound bites in about a half an hour if you don't mind. Well, it's up to you. We're at 6.53 already, and it's your show, so I'll do whatever you say. I'm in here for the duration, baby. Yeah, I just think to do another show just on four or five sound clips may be a little difficult. So let's just plug through this. Here's the next one. Um, and now we're moving into the KJV conversation. So now we've, we're going to set the JST off to the side. We've discussed the old way of framing it and the new kind of language we're applying to it and how old truth claims are being thrown under the bus and the church is watering it down. Again, we have prophets, seers, and revelators. And it seems as though in this church, when you have prophets, seers, and revelators, you know less and less with every passing day. Now we'll move on to the KJV, and here is uh, Thomas Wayman talking about the KJV and the Bible itself maybe generally is destabilized. The challenges, and and when you mention your challenges uh, for someone like me, there's this question to me, if, if the Bible is subject to correction today and not by manuscripts, how does someone like myself engage that how how do is the bible stable for latter-day saints so the book of mormon is a fixed text we don't go back and correct that but but the new testament isn't that way for latter-day saints and 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 an interesting thing that happened in my sunday school uh, last sunday the teacher read the text and jesus was saying one thing and then the joseph smith translation changes it to the exact opposite like taking out a knot and that's that's interesting for me. How do I grapple with that? Or am I to believe that the Bible was wrong and then that I'm supposed to see it that way? Is Joseph Smith teaching me that he was sensitive to the way it was said and he's saying, I don't see that? And and then it all came down to a confusion on the Greek word to try. And so I'm I see it in all three of those ways. And it's really hard to have a Bible so destabilized for the community. Yeah, I'll just note, I think what he's saying is that as we deal with the issues of the JST and we deal with the errors in the KJV and how weak of a translation it is, and then we deal with just the Bible generally and the problems it has in comparison to Mormonism, what ends up happening is you've essentially thrown out any idea that God is the mainstay behind it all and hence everything related to the Bible and Joseph Smith's work with it is fluid and up for grabs, and it becomes very destabilized for the LDS community. Yeah, it's interesting that Thomas Wayman has a problem with this. Now, I understand why he has a problem. He did a good job of describing it. But Joseph Smith, a large part of his mission, he called it a branch of his calling, involved destabilizing the text of the Bible. If we're looking at it from Thomas Wayman's definition, From Joseph Smith's perspective, he's restoring what was there originally in fulfillment of 1 Nephi 13. But that's what destabilized everything. And now we've got the King James Version, and we've got the Joseph Smith translation. And which is superior? 
And that's where he's talking, I think, about this destabilization. Yeah. I don't know that it's necessarily a bad thing in every way. I can see how it could be difficult in some instances because you don't have an authoritative text on which everybody agrees. So everybody can look at the same text and try and understand what it's saying. That's happened for 2,000 years just with the New Testament alone, though I know it didn't come into existence until around 367. So almost 2,000 years. It's been a long time this has been going on. People looking at the same text and coming up with different interpretations. That problem is magnified. If you don't have the same text, you know, that text is squishy. Is it this text or is it this text? And they're both considered to be authoritative within the same faith tradition. And I yeah. think that's what he's getting at. And then the next clip here, he's they're asking the question about us being stuck with the KJV. And they're posing reasons for it. And I'll just note, we are acknowledging them, which is, one, the church Pre, uh, showed preference to the KJV as the best English translation. But it goes way deeper than that. The KJV is deeply connected to the Book of Mormon. For instance, you and I, RFM, grew up with this Isaiah 29, they shall speak out of the ground as if from the dust and Familiar all story. that whole thing. We've got uh, the stick of Ephraim and the stick of Joseph. Um, we've got so mm -hmm. We have so many connections in the Book of Mormon that really only makes sense if we use the KJV in the false meaning that we've applied to those scriptures. That Mormonism, at least up until this moment, was it was better off intertwining the KJV with the Book of Mormon and leaving its members sort of ignorant of current modern biblical criticism. Mm -hmm. And now Thomas Wayment comes in and goes, guys, the KJV is not that great. Fact, it's really problematic. The Joseph Smith translation is really problematic. And we would be better off as a community moving to a more modern Bible translation. And him and Rick Bennett in the soundbite are discussing why the church feels stuck with the KJV. I think that's one of the reasons why we stick with King James Version is because that was the version Joseph Smith used. And so because I, I remember last time you said, especially on the little minor changes that Joseph Smith made, that if we just updated the the version of the Bible to a modern translation, a lot of those just disappear, those problems disappear. And I think that's one of the things readers said in the first edition of my translation. You know, why didn't you use the Joseph Smith translation? And I think I think a lot of people don't know that so much of the Joseph Smith translation is about the KJV. And a modern translation, because it renders it differently, doesn't have those same issues. So you really can't can't engage it. You can't put it in the footnotes even. What do you make of that, Bill? I think the church is in sort of a sticky position, isn't it? It's sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place because it's truth claims hinge on one narrative, and its ability to deal with the facts and the data hinges on a second narrative. And those two narratives say two very different things about what the church is, about who Joseph Smith is, and about what the restoration is. Yeah, yeah. it'd be great to have a better translation that's not so Elizabethan. It's more accessible to a modern reader. And that, at the same time, is not just a transliteration. It's not just a rephrasing like the Living Bible. It's actually another translation based upon better and older and probably more accurate manuscripts. Maven. Yeah. 
Yes, um, I was just thinking how convenient it is, and I've mentioned this before, I think, on the show. Uh, just, it's only the problematic things that we have to come up with all of these excuses for. Joseph did mean this, or he didn't mean that, or you know, this just this really kind of fuzzy language. I think it was a clip we already showed where where Thomas said, like, I could see Joseph Smith, you know, thinking this this way, and then Saints Unscripted too. They said it like. Um, that he, I guess that Joseph Smith thought, oh, I could have maybe worded that better, but it's sufficient for my needs now, where they said the quiet part out loud on that clip. Yeah, it's just it's just real convenient. Um, the, these kind of apologetic games never have to be played for um, things that line up really well. So it's just something that I think if, if members of the church were to really take note of and see how often that happens, you know, with the skin of blackness and white and delightsome, now meaning anything but literal skin color and, and white meaning pure now, just all of these things, they're always, you know, it just, these kind of commentaries never happen on anything else that isn't causing the church a problem. So it's just, I just think it's really, really convenient how there's always an answer and we can always seem to like, it's like a greased pig, just with anything we've said in the past, whatever, whatever we need to do to get out of um, a teaching of the church. Yeah. Um, yeah I think you nailed it. it. The church is always retreating in the modern age. The church is always retreating. They're not just retreating, yep. they're being routed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and my problem, the follow-up with what Maven said, which was a great point, is that what we have today is church scholars speaking for and in behalf of the church in many occasions, okay? Who are now, their defense of Joseph Smith is to say he didn't mean anything he said. He didn't know what it was he was doing. He's the prophet of God. He's the one who's in connection with the divine. But he has not the faintest clue as to what he's doing when he says he is translating things. Because as the science and as the textual criticism, as all the, the field of this uh, entire endeavor, Bible studies, advances further and further, we find out more and more that Joseph Smith was not doing what it was that he claimed to be doing. So I suppose you're left as a member of the church or a professor at BYU with two options. You can either say that Joseph Smith was wrong about what it was he was doing and that science has shown that he was wrong and therefore he was not as in touch with the divine as he claimed to be and as much as church leaders today teach that he was and as much as members believe it today. You could say that or you could say, and that's not very faith promoting, or you could say, well, Joseph Smith just didn't understand what it was he was doing. He thought he was restoring what was had on ancient manuscripts, but really it was just sort of his study notes. And this seems to be what we see over and over. And I'm not sure which of those is the least faith promoting, because I don't find that second option very faith promoting either. And I don't think a lot of people in the church are. Yeah. And I'll just note, as people seem to be flocking to movements like the Snufferites, there seems to be a collective um, loss of excitement in the church where people are realizing that all the cool claims we used to make, that we are retreating and watering them down. And there seems to be a sense in the church 
indicated by the movement to those groups and people leaving. And those are two very different movements in two different directions that people in the church are going like, yeah, this isn't, this isn't what we thought it was. This isn't as exciting as the eighties and nineties. This is, this is just kind of like Methodism with a few extra books. Right. Yeah, it is. I mean, what do you say about a church where the main claim to spirituality in the church today is the ability to stay awake during general conference? Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay, the next soundbite is uh, malicious or sincere. This has to do with the uh, the translators and those wicked priests who corrupted the scriptures. And oh, so yeah. let's put uh, let's put this up on the screen. Here is that. That's true. It's it's hard for us to. Um really, I think, say that Bible translators don't have motive. It, that's a hard thing. I, I've heard from a number of audiences that there's a perception that Bible translators are shifty people who have done kind of damage or, or, or you know, treated the Bible without respect. But Bible translators are very careful. They're very skilled. And with the exception of a very small class of Bibles, these main Bibles, NIV, NRSV, ESV, these are excellent translations, and readers would do well to, to engage yeah. them. Yeah. That is a very different story than what the church gave us, right? The church told us that these other translations can't be trusted. They're inconsistent with doctrine. And then if we go back further, they told us that all the people who did all these previous translations, other than the KJV, were folks who were trying to distort the Bible. And then we're told, if we go back even further, the very people who put the Bible together and carried it through the first few hundred years were ones that intentionally messed things up. And what Thomas Wayman's doing is coming through as a scholar, and, and he doesn't want to say it directly, but what he's saying is, I don't care what church leaders told you over the last 200 years. The reality is that the translators actually had a lot of integrity and really did a good job. Right. And if I can make a few comments that have to do with the long end... The long ending of Mark. Please. All right. So basically what uh, has been known for a long time is that the last 10 verses or so of Mark are not present in the earliest and best manuscripts. And this is a significant point because it has to do with Jesus showing up. I mean, the resurrection. The original ma manuscript of Mark, which would be the scholarly consensus at this point, overwhelming scholarly consensus. First off, Mark is the first gospel written. Second off, there's no resurrection scene. All there is is an empty tomb and a declaration from some guy, maybe an angel, I don't know, that he's not there. And then the women go fleeing from the empty tomb. Curtain comes down. End of story. That's it. And then at some point after that, it was decided that they wanted to make it a more complete ending with the resurrection of Jesus. And so if you read the ending of Mark now, those last 10 verses, you can see how they were cobbled together from resurrection scenes from the other Gospels. Okay, so that's the long ending of Mark. The first problem has to do with what it is that Thomas Wayman was mentioning earlier, which is in Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible. He doesn't come along to the long ending of Mark and say, wait a second, this is not, this shouldn't be here. This is not reflected in the earliest manuscripts. I'm trying to get back to the original manuscript. So I'm just going to cut out those last 10 verses. That's what he would have done if, in fact, he were doing what it was he claimed to be doing, which is restoring it to its original form. Instead, the long version is still there. All right. 
That's one problem. Second problem that Thomas Wayman did not mention, but that he knows, is that the long ending of Mark, or at least substantial portions and very identifiable portions of it, shows up in the Book of Mormon. So why do we have a passage that was not in any original manuscript in the New Testament? Well, first off, why do we have anything that was in the New Testament showing right. up in the Book of Shouldn't Mormon? Shouldn't be That's there in the, the first, first problem, place. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but this just amplifies it. This wasn't yeah. in the first uh, manuscripts, the original manuscripts of the New Testament, and it's still showing up in the Book of Mormon. But having said all of that, okay, having said all of that, my last comment about this long ending is that it's been there in the King James Version since 1611. And this has been the author, excuse me, authorized version. I think that's what they call it over there in, in England. And we call it the King James Version. It's the same thing. It's the authorized version. It has been there for centuries. And now scholars come along with their new understandings that this is not something that was in the original manuscript of Mark. And they come out with a new version, like the, the Revised Standard Version or the New Revised Standard Version. They take it out because it was never there to begin with. I think they put it in a footnote. I could look it up, but I won't right now. And that's what happens with these newer versions because they're trying to be more faithful to the original manuscripts and to the best scholarship. King James Version was too, but that was 1611. Their Old Testament manuscript is the Masoretic text, which is from 1000 CE. So 1000 AD is what we used to call it, right? And that's not very old from 1611, especially now when we can go back a thousand years before that to earlier manuscripts of the Old Testament with the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery in 1947. So we've got so much better manuscripts now that to cling to the King James Version is a disservice to trying to get the best translations from the best manuscripts. But let's say you're going along, you're just a fundamentalist Christian, maybe even a Mormon, and you've got the long ending of uh, Mark where Jesus shows up and says, hey, everybody, I'm resurrected. And now a Bible comes forth, which is not the King James Version. It's one of those new translations that you've got to watch because they're trying to decrease or de-emphasize or negate the divinity of Jesus. That's the suspicion. That's what everybody was worried about. And you look in your Gospel of Mark and you get to the end of it in one of these new versions and it stops. Where the original Gospel of Mark probably did stop with the empty tomb and no resurrection. And you look at that and you say, I told you those translators are at it again. They took out the entire resurrection of Jesus from the ending of Mark. So these guys are anti-Christians. They don't believe in the divinity of Jesus. And it's their antagonism toward Jesus's divinity that is causing them to take out passages from the Bible that establishes Jesus's divinity. So that's their perspective. It's an incorrect perspective, but that's the perspective nonetheless. And Mormons adopted that wholesale. And that's why we focus, that's one of the many reasons why we focus so much on the King James Version as being the correct version. Hi, Maven. I just, hi, I just wanted to piggyback off of that. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because it, it didn't seem like it was in the outline, but it was something I, I had thought of. Um, and I don't know if it's, if the, this is maybe, you know, a, a correlation isn't necessarily causation kind of a, a thing, but it does seem, uh, you know, with the shiny happy people documentary that came out about the IBLP um, and other, other more strict, more fundamentalist, 
hardline, hardcore Christians also have the same affinity for the King James version of the Bible. And it seems like the church is aligning with those groups a lot more and more. We're seeing that, at least in the U.S., politically, um, really tossing in their... Um, with those other types of Christians in order to pass legislation or, or do the things that the church also wants done. And it seems like it's those types of Christians that more often than not are the church's bedfellows versus the more progressive types of Christians, the ones using the new um, versions of the Bible and the ones who tend to be a little bit less hardline, a little bit less homophobic, a little less misogynistic or sexist. Uh, those are not the Christians the church wants to align with. So it, it just occurred to me that this this affinity for the KJV is just yet another thing that puts Mormonism with the fundamentalist, uh, you know, most hard hardline Christians. Thank you, Mamet. Um, I think I think Wayment makes the comment, and I think I'd read this somewhere else too, where the ending in Mark was added, they think, around 200 years later. Oh, yeah, it's from... substantial. It's not even close. Right. It's not even close. So what you have is you have the, this strange situation where you've got the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and Joseph Smith's attitude toward the Bible and the whole Joseph Smith translation, which shows he doesn't think it's written in stone. He thinks it's uh, corrupted. Things have been taken out. Let's work on it. Let's make it better. Let's make it more accurately reflect what it originally said. And he worked on that over and over and re received a command from God to do it for crying out loud. And yet, oh, excuse me. And let's also put in the article of faith, right? Uh, we believe the Bible as far as it is translated correctly. I think that might right. be number eight. I could be corrected on that. So it's, it's even in the articles of faith. And yet, over the course of time, what the LDS Church has done is it has turned into one of these fundamentalist, conservative Christian groups that are sometimes called KJV-only churches. That's mm. what we've become, in effect. There are some places now where they'll start saying, well, you could study a different Bible if you want to, but when it comes to church, you're just using the KJV. That's right. about all the latitude that's given by the church when it comes to other translations but this is the irony the lds church has effectively become a kjv only church yeah and, and i just want to note the 200 years late like when we find new testament scriptures in the book of mormon um which we shouldn't the apologetic response is always like why can't god tell two people the same thing in different places and right. the trouble is when some of those scriptures are third Isaiah or uh, things written into math or into Mark uh, 200 years later, and, and there's a host of these, there's five, six, seven of these where they happen where they shouldn't. Um, you end up with that apologetic argument doesn't really work. So yeah. you have to deal with it in some other way. Yeah. I would think that if I were advising the church, um, I would suggest that they do use a different translation not only because it gets you back earlier, not only because it's more understandable and more accessible to the people who are reading it. The second thing is, is that it would also, maybe it's the third thing by now, but most importantly, it would obscure the connections between Joseph Smith's KJV and the Book of Mormon, where it shows up word for word in vast swaths. Every now and then a word will be changed, but it's obviously being plagiarized. And this one, I would totally say, yeah, plagiarism with a capital P. So plagiarized in the Book of Mormon from many, many chapters of Isaiah and 
also from the New, the New Testament with the Sermon on the Mount and a couple of different passages from Paul, I think from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in one place and chapter 14 in another. I think they work in chapter 13 as well. It appears the Book of Mormon was very fond of 1 Corinthians. Yeah. So we've got three more sound bites and then one little quick reiteration of one from previous as a conclusion. I'm going to hope we can kind of sneak through these sort of quickly, but KJV is vintage, out of date, essentially. So here's uh, Wayman and Rick Bennett. But he said that he recently defended the King James Version against people like me that think, ah, oh, just get rid of it. It's like a Model T Ford. <laughs> like I would, I mean, it's a cool, you know, if you want to drive in a parade with a Model T, that would be great. But I don't want to drive to work in that thing every day. And that to me, yeah, that to me, that's how the King James Version is. And I would love for us to update our Bibles. We do this in other languages, but in English, it's like we're married to the King James Version. And I mean, can you talk about that issue? Does it, because Joseph Smith used the King James, is that why we're stuck with it? Will we ever be able to use a NRSV or ESV or some of these other Bibles? Yeah, it's a complicated story for me. So I I can only really give you my perspective. I'm I'm not sure what the we you know could do. That we'll see you know, what the future holds. But um, from a from a person like me's perspective, I encounter a lot of people who read the Bible. I, I speak to groups and 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 give feedback. And we'll, what we've developed in the church, in my opinion, is an elite readership. And these are typically white males who have been through the seminary program, they potentially have been to BYU, and they can decode the KJV. They can read it well, they understand it pretty well. And then it, then it, the loss in the next generation is enormous. And every generation we go earlier, so your seminary students today, only a few of those will graduate from seminary being able to read the KJV. And so to me, I, I cannot understand why we would we would kind of keep a text that we simply can't understand when there's an understandable version. It's kind of like trying to do mathematics through in Latin. You're like, well, people know how to do math, but we're going to do ours in Latin. Yeah, he's he's dogging on the King James version, but as we've talked about tonight, there's a lot of reasons why the church feels married to it. Um, it really is the language of the Book of Mormon. It really is the language of the JST. And But as you pointed out, RFM, now might be the moment where you want to untangle yourself from it, and it might actually benefit you to go in a different direction. Yeah, and I understand what he's saying and why the church does what it does, because when the Book of Mormon was published, and I have the original version over there, replica, of the original version. It was bound in such a way as to make it look like a very commonly accessible Bible. So they looked like they went together even when it was originally published. So that's the way uh, the sort of the tan binding, the tan colored binding and having the name of it on the spine and the way it did. This is all patterned after a popular version of the King James publication at the time. So they want to have it look the same. They want to have it be similar. And the fact is the language of the, the Book of Mormon is King James Version-esque Bible. A lot of it is actually from the King James Version, but the rest of it is spoken in such a way as to make it look that way. So I suppose what they're looking at is if we take a version that is kind of plain English and we have that Bible, but it's still right next door to the Book of Mormon, you can still have similar covers 
but they're not going to sound at all the same. And maybe that's what they're worried about. I remember, was it back in the 70s when somebody came forward with a version of the Book of Mormon that was simply, it was like the Living Bible. They rephrased it in such a way as to make it common English. I don't think that was sanctioned by the church. I haven't looked at that in a long time. There was a paperback version that I saw in a bookstore back then. I didn't really know what to make of it at the time. But regardless of whether that was sanctioned by the church, and I don't think it was, it did not catch on. But maybe that's what they should do. Maybe they should do an updating of the Book of Mormon language to make it more common English and make it more accessible, though it's not nowhere near as inaccessible as the King James Version of the Bible is. Yeah. Except yeah. the Isaiah chapters. Except for those which have tons of KJV errors in them that uh, shouldn't be there. Strangely, though, Joseph wasn't using any other text other than his head in a hat with a rock. That's all he did. Okay, this is the 11th soundbite. This one has to do with a... They start to hint at the fact that the problem might be that it's 15 old white guys. By the way, in the last clip, he mentioned that the only ones who really seem to be able to decode the KJV is a very small percentage of LDS members who are scholarly white males. And the rest of us are sort of uh, at a uh, disadvantage when dealing with that text. And that Wayman says we'd be better off moving on so that the entire church membership can benefit from reading the Bible. Can I say a couple things before you get to this next one? Please. I want to make sure we have lots of commentary about these clips so we can defeat the um, the YouTube strike when and if it comes, right? Okay. So, <laughs> but no, um, first off, I, I got to disagree with Thomas Wayman here. I think that uh, there would be plenty of people of color who would achieve the same level of familiarity with the language in the King James Bible in the LDS church if we had more people of color. We've got plenty of women and more and more of them are getting into... Uh, these academic fields related to the Bible. And I think that there are tons of women who can understand it just as well as the men. But it does require an additional discipline that you have to understand the language before you can understand the Bible. And I, what Thomas Wayman is saying, I totally get. Why, do you, why go through the first thing? Why do math in Latin when you can just do math without, in English or whatever your, you know, your language is? Why have right. to learn Latin to do math? Why well, have to learn Elizabethan language in order to do Bible studies? I got it. That makes sense. However, I've got a story, okay, which illustrates what he said. And I remember this for some reason. This is back when I was at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm at the Institute building, which is also where we had classes. There is a lobby there. There's a couple of sofas out there on either side of the doorway. And it was a Sunday, and over here on one couch is a guy who was a member of the church, and I can't remember his name, and that's fine. And he's reading the Old Testament to this other person and trying to explain to them this story, which he thought was important. And it was, the story was where, in the Old Testament, Genesis, where Isaac is giving the blessing to Esau. And you remember what... Uh, Jacob does, or is it Joseph? No, it's Joseph. What Joseph does is he, um, no, it is Jacob. Jacob switches with Esau. Remember, he puts on all the hair and everything, so he fools his dad into thinking that he is actually his brother, who's the older one who gets the birthright, blah, 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 blah. All this goes to say is that the word unwitting is used in the King James Version there. And what it says is, is that 
Isaac, who is legally blind at this point and can't see for beans, right? His boys are brought in front of him and he doesn't do this to give the blessing with his right hand on the favored son. He does this. Remember, he crosses his hands so that Jacob ends up getting the blessing, mm -hmm. the preferred blessing with the right hand. And what it says, he did it unwittingly. Now, that is not a phrase or a word that's used very much today in common discourse. We would say unknowingly. It, it's used a little bit in law, maybe as a defense to the possession of something you're not supposed to have, like drugs, to show that it was an unwitting possession, that you didn't know it was drugs. You didn't know you had the drugs. They just happened to be on your, your person in some creative way that you didn't know. So unwitting possession. But the thing I remember, and I hope this is worth the point I'm making, is that this individual who's explaining it says he put his hands on them unwittingly. He's reading, and then he explains to the person, unwitting, that means that his hands were shaking. Now, this individual who's doing this, he doesn't know what unwitting means. That much is clear. And I didn't stick my nose in and correct him, okay? As much as you might think I would. I just observed it from a distance because who cares? It doesn't mean you're shaking. But the thing is, is that what it does is it's a word that's in a story that you've got to account for as you're reading it. So if you don't know what it is and you don't want to look it up, then you can just sort of make up your own meaning for it on the fly. And the person he's describing it to isn't going to say, that's not what unwitting means. They just go along with it. So when you don't know the words because it's kind of a foreign language now, I think it lends itself to these creative interpretations of words that we're not familiar with. In other words, naivete and ignorance might be of net benefit to LDS leaders and may play into why we use the KJV. If so, I don't know that it's intentional on their part. I think it probably redounds to their benefit. Yeah. Oh, can I give you one more example, which I mentioned to you on the phone, just really quick about let. Remember second, hey, this is cool. Actually, I don't have my KJV, so I can't do it. But it's second, the, uh, second Thessalonians chapter two, where they have the seminary scripture about the apostasy, that not be troubled by letter or by word, by word or by letter as from us is that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man trouble you by any means for that day shall not come except there come the following way first and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. Okay, so that's the one we use, right? In second uh, I mean, Thessalonians. Color me impressed that you just oh. quoted that from, you know, you lazy learner, you know what I just mean? Just don't check. Just don't check yeah. it, okay? Um, but yeah, I think that's pretty close. But then it goes on to talk about that the, the son of perdition, he sits in the temple of God pretending that he is God, right? But the power of God that lets, will let, until the time come that he be exposed for what he is, kind of. It's the word let that's the important thing here. Because this is something that's so interesting to me about the Bible and Shakespeare which is words back then, there are some words that have different meanings. The word let, we understand that today to mean to allow. So when we, to let somebody do something, will you let me go to the, the store, mom? Okay, will you allow me to go to the store? It's the same thing, it's a synonym. 400 years ago, let meant the exact opposite of allow. It meant to prohibit, to keep from doing something. So when it's saying in 2 Thessalonians that he who lets will let until the time come, it's not saying 
he who allows will allow. It's saying he who prohibits will prohibit until the time come. So that's a, that's a classic example of why it is that the King James Version should probably be either changed or a new version used. How about that? I think mm. we should use a new version. That's Great a classic point. example. And, and uh, I found that out through my studies of Shakespeare because that comes up in Hamlet, where Hamlet's using the word let in a very clearly meaning where he's meaning prevent, where his friends are trying to keep him from going talk to the ghost of his dad, who he, he's not sure if it's his dad yet, and neither are they. And they're saying, Prince, we're not going to let you go off with that ghost because who the heck knows what's going to happen. He might go all poltergeist on you. But he says, Hamlet says, I'll make a ghost of him that lets me. And typically he'll grab onto the hilt of his sword at that point. Maybe he'll draw it on his friends. And he says, I'll make a ghost of him that lets me, which means I'll kill anybody who tries to keep me from going and seeing the ghost of my father. But that's only if you know that let used to mean prohibit. Nowadays, if you look at it, it says, I'll make a ghost of anybody who allows me to go see my father. It doesn't make sense unless you know what the original meaning was. Mm. Okay, is that enough commentary to get around the copyright strike? Should be great. Okay, so we got good. another clip? Okay, we got another clip and then a quick conclusion. This is uh, just a quick note of them postulating that the LDS leadership is too old and that might be the problem. Is it because our leadership is so old? I mean, I hate to, I hate to, to go ageist like that, but like they grew up with it, they understand it. Why don't the younger generation? Um, it, in a sense, it's maybe prolonged exposure to it. Maybe it's it's comfort. They taught it, and and on their missions, they they read it, and to people on the other side, also read it. And that's not happening anymore. So if our missionaries read the King James, it is very rare that someone on the other side will say, "Oh, that's also the Bible I read." I just want to note, by the way, throughout the entire conversation with Rick Bennett and Thomas Wayman, they completely ignore the truth claims of the old narrative. Did you notice that, by the way? The entire conversation, there's never a conversation between the two of them that Joseph Smith is limited to restoring the text to its original form hmm. and, um, and that Joseph Smith or that the King James Version has been promoted by LDS leadership as the most doctrinally consistent version. They have avoided those two points in their entire conversation. And I have to wonder, because they're both old enough to know better. They both grew up with the Mormonism you and I did. Mm -hmm. One has to wonder why they ignored the obvious. Well, you'll also notice that at no point that I heard in either the Gospel Tangents discussion with Professor Wayman or the Saints Inscripted program, at no point do they go immediately and at the outset to what everybody always used to go to, which was 1 Nephi chapter 13. So now 1 Nephi 13 becomes a passage that is rendered, what, it's put in the closet. We're not going to use that anymore because it doesn't match our narrative. And there are, it's going to join several passages from Third Nephi, I want to do a podcast about this sometime, which are the secret chapters of Third Nephi, which are the ones we never talk about. Because in very short order, what it is that Jesus prophesies there to the Nephites about what's going to happen in the last days did not end up happening with Joseph Smith. And so, just very briefly, it talks about how 
um, all the converted Gentiles are going to gather uh, in one place into the New Jerusalem. And then the Native Americans, the descendants of the Nephites, well, they all died, but the descendants of the Lamanites are going to be converted. They're going to join them, and then they're going to go out and destroy all the other Gentiles who are not smart enough to become Mormons. And then they're going to rule and reign over the country. So pretty soon after, in the history of the church, that was shown that that didn't happen. And that's why we don't talk about those chapters in 3 Nephi anymore. And I think that 1 Nephi 13 is going to be joining those chapters in 3 Nephi because what it is they predict, what it is they talk about didn't happen. So we'd rather not mention them in polite company. Yeah, we avoid, we avoid the things that are problematic, don't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I'll wrap up here. This is the conclusion comment. This one was played before, but I just want to play a part of it. Um, you'll understand why I think as it plays, but here's the, the last soundbite I wanted to touch on. And then we'll show a Brigham Young quote and we'll get out of well, here. And it's funny because as we look, you know, there's the article of faith. We believe the Bible is the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. And when we get a correct translation, it's like we, we almost rebel against it. Yeah. So what, what they're saying is that we live in a world where there are better translations. We live in a world where we're now owning that Joseph Smith translation is not that great. It, it is actually carries on problems and doesn't restore anything. And the KJV is problematic um, because it it's an old language and it carries forth so many errors. And yet we Latter-day Saints have been so trained by our leaders in the curriculum that if any idea of putting forth a modern translation of the Bible and admitting the faults of the JST out in the open to the general membership would be would might cause utter rebellion in the minds of believers, right? Mm -hmm. And they're noting that. And I just want to point out that Thomas Wayman, you mentioned this, Thomas Wayman was uh, brought on by the church to create his own translation of the Bible. Of the New Testament, yes. Of the New Testament. And it seems as though they had the idea that they would use it, except that when they got it, they looked at it and seemingly decided that something about it was going to be too problematic to use. And so then now Wayman is now trying to sell the copyright to his Bible to other publishers and and move it in other ways. But as you and I talked about the other day, it's going to be near impossible for him to sell a New Testament translation for which the church doesn't want, which members will loyally obey its leaders, and for which the general public outside of Mormonism doesn't want because it's a Mormon translation of the New Testament. And hence, he'll be lucky. He'll be lucky if he sells 11 copies of that thing. I'm going to, I, I know it's covering my face here now, but um, Steve Pinecker with Mormon Book Review said this earlier. So I've got this quote up on screen. Um, he says, I've shared Thomas's translation of the New Testament with some biblical scholars, and they tell me it's a solid work. So I think. I imagine it is. I mean, you're probably right that he's got an uphill battle to face, but I, a lot of evangelicals will inadvertently use Mormon stuff if they don't know it comes from Mormons. I, I'm thinking particularly art. Um, I remember seeing, uh, again, on my mission, someone who was really upset with us, did not think we were real Christians, you know, that that, that kind of a typical person. But in there, um, they had a large 
painting that I recognized as uh, an LDS artist in their home. And I just thought that was really funny that, and it was of Jesus, of course. So we're not real Christians. We don't follow the real Christ, but I'm glad that you enjoy our artwork of Christ. Anyway, I, so it's possible. I, I, I hope, uh, I hope you're wrong on this. If he's gone through all that work, I hope he'll be able to sell it. But I do suspect I just want to he might show be you, right, Maven, Bill. The problem is, it says the New Testament, Ooh, yep. a translation <laughs> for Latter-day Saints, revised edition. That's a problem. Yeah. And he yep, did that's going to be tough. Because the church asked him to do it in hopes that they would use it. And then he did it. He gets moved to a different department and he's taken off this project. And they don't pay him for the copyright, obviously, as RFM pointed out this. Otherwise, he wouldn't be shopping it. Mm. Yeah, the church doesn't own it. Or if they if they did, they gave it to him to allow him to try and publish it somewhere else. But this is worse. It might be having. a good idea to take that out of the title than the Latter-day Saint. If you want to <laughs> it make it more better, popular, it might do better. Yeah, that's going to be <laughs> tough to get um, your base. I think Steve Pinnaker bought one of the 11, and, and now we got 10 more to go. Yeah. This is worse than having a moving project and you all show up, you take time off on Saturday morning, right? You go there and you find out it's been canceled because that'll happen all the time in the church, right? You know, there's something and you go and it just didn't pan out. This is having a scholar of Greek translate the entire New Testament from the manuscripts and do his very best to come up with a new translation of the New Testament for Latter-day Saints. And then once he got it done, the church says, never mind. We're not really interested after all. That's my sense of what happened. Now, I could be wrong, but I also know that it's something that Thomas Wayment is dealing with, and he's trying to deal with it as gracefully as possible. I do hear make comments, like in interviews like yeah. this. Totally, by the way, something happened and I don't know what, but now they're not going to publish it. So now I'm going to try and sell it over here. He comes across as very kind. He comes across as very respectful to the LDS leaders to the point where he blamed the members for thinking about the translators and the priest and the scribes as malicious, when in reality it was the leaders who taught them. So it's a form of gaslighting. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's being very cordial to the leadership. But in reality, if we look at all that's happened with him, in a sort of way, they've screwed him over the last few years. Oh, totally. Not just in sort of a way. They have screwed yeah. him over royally. Yeah. And I just want you to know, Tom, I feel for you. Yeah. The last little quote I wanted to share uh, was Brigham Young. He declared, if we could correct the KJV Bible, we should. If the Bible be translated incorrectly and there is a scholar on earth, Thomas Wayman who professes to be a Christian and he can translate it any better than King James translators did it. He is under obligation to do so. Good job, Thomas. You kept Brigham Young's uh, admonition to you or the curses upon him. If I understood Greek and Hebrew as some may profess to do, and I knew the Bible was not translated correctly, I should feel myself bound by the law of justice to the inhabitants of the earth to translate that which is incorrect and to give it just as it was spoken anciently. Is that that proper? Isn't there? Yeah. Give it just as it was spoken anciently. Yeah. Is that proper? Yes. I would be under obligation to do it. I just want to know what Brigham Young is telling the LDS leaders are is that the KJV falls short. The Joseph Smith translation falls short. Brigham Young is telling you LDS leaders to go ahead and set whatever your, whatever your reasons are aside and move along with not only a better translation of the Bible, but also move along and be willing to say, 
whatever Joseph Smith was doing, it wasn't a restoring of the text to the original manuscript. He carries errors forward. And we just want to acknowledge that it's not what we said it was. And we'd like to move on from it. Is that all that you're interpolating into what Brigham Young said? What do you think is added there? Well, because he's not dealing with the Joseph Smith translation because they don't even have it at that time. Yeah. It's those damn reorganized. They've got it. And, ooh, we're mad about it. And we wish we could get our hands on it, but we don't. So he might be referring to it obliquely, but he's not referring to it specifically. Because I think he'd be saying, yeah, this does exactly what he thinks a modern person as of his time should do if they had the ability, which is restore, retranslate the Bible and restore it to just as it was spoken anciently. Yeah, I, yeah. I have no doubt that he would agree that that's what Joseph Smith did with his translation, but he doesn't have it. Yeah. But that's by the modern standard, we would understand that that the Joseph Smith translation falls short. It's not a great Bible translation. And the KJV falls short. It's not a great Bible translation. There are better translations out there, including Thomas Wayman's. Mm-hmm. And hence, if the church wants to do what Brigham Young is admonishing to happen, they should move on from both the KJV and the JST. Yeah, as should any Bible, any Bible believing church. Yeah. Because adherence to the KJV is just a matter of faith now. It's a matter of religious belief. It's not an attempt to increase our understanding and get a better translation from better manuscripts. Right. And the same thing with the JST. It's inferior. It doesn't get things right. It simply carries errors forward, borrows from old contemporary Bible commentaries, and uh, really isn't adding anything to uh, what we understand about the Bible itself. Yeah, it's destabilizing to use Thomas yeah. Wayman's word. Yeah, his words. Perfect. Um, I've left the number up there. We didn't announce it, but there aren't any calls in the call bank. We're at 842. No callers. Uh, ha- Come on. What's going I'm on? I'm happy to hang on for a minute if folks want to, do want to call 662-667-6667 or 662-MORMONS with an S on Steve Pinecker, I, cha- I challenge you, I promise <laughs> I challenge you to call in and I promise you that God will bless you richly if you do as I say. We'll see. We'll see if we get him. Um, <laughs> I I just wanted to jump in, I guess, for one thing. Since we don't have anybody in the call bank, and and this was my primary or one of my primary reactions to viewing all was uh, just again how um, how the church to build church really does require consistent, ongoing, constant mental gymnastics for these kinds of things because. Um, it's just the nice thing about being out of the church is the ability to look at the information and apply comes razor and just just see clearly what the information is telling. But when you're a member of the church, there's no really setting anything down. In one of the clips we showed, Thomas Wayman said, uh, I think he said something about uh, a few different views, different ways to to look at something, and he just kind of tries to all three. And I just thought, what a, I mean, there's just so much space these kinds of things take up in your brain so that I mean so much so that one of it was one of the things I noticed about my deconstruction and leaving the church was it felt like 
getting an upgrade the way you would with, you know, if you have a really old laptop that's just uh, really slow and it's burdened down with viruses that you're not aware of and then you get a brand new one and it's just so much faster. There's, I think, I really do feel like the that are constantly going in your brain and the kinds of things, they really do add up and they really do take up space. I, I think like RAM space. So it's just amazing how much clearer I feel about anything, just day-to-day -day clarity that just was not ever possible, really truly impossible as a member of the church. Okay. So. I appreciate that because you're right. Like in the JSTs also, it's like you have two old laptops and they're, they're both not running well. They're both yeah. not helping you out. And you just continue to impose that. Well, I got two of them. That's better than one. So I'm in good shape. In reality, right. everybody else has moved on with Windows 13 or whatever. I, I just feel bad that members of the church just have to have so much to grapple with. And there's no end to the grapple either. You know, for yeah. us, like it's Occam's razor. We're there. We've hit a conclusion. But for them, they still have to like hold these incompatible things. It's almost like I, 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 I feel like it's like trying to hug a porcupine. Like they, they, they can't let it go, but it's also not helping. But they, they can't make a decision like one way or another. It's just... Um, it's just a tough place to be. And so I just see that with, with Thomas especially, but also with just just having to just come up with stories at all about this kind of stuff. I, I feel bad for them. Yeah, it's like the church yeah, is running on Vista. I don't have Vista. to do that anymore. Yeah, the church is running on Vista, and <laughs> yeah. I think uh, having prophets, seers, and revelators doesn't make it much better. No. All right. No. We do have one phone call. It is actually Steve P uh, Pinecker. So let's, uh, let's bring Steve on. Open and we'll the have windows him close out our We'll have him close out our show. So, Steve, let me uh, let me just double check. Are you there, my friend? Yes, I am. Sweet. I am here. RFM, you 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 challenged me, so challenge accepted. My Blessings friend. are yours, How are you my guys friend. Doing Good. Collect them on the way out. <laughs> I'm glad you came under your real name and <laughs> well, you, you didn't make something up like I don't know Richard Nygren or something, but. Glad you're here. <laughs> By the way, I, I actually ran into some of those uh, people at the Mormon History Association. You I ran into Richard Nygren? How, uh, how Richard's doing. Well, yeah, I, actually, I, I was tempted to ask them that. But, uh, well, let's just move on from that. But either way, I just wanted to say that, uh, you know, I, I interviewed Thomas on my program as well. And okay, I now you're just a little bit fuzzy. A, you're a little bit fuzzy. Could you, you interviewed Thomas? Oh. And somebody else yeah. as well? Yeah, no, I interviewed Thomas on my channel. Yes. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Okay, okay, Mr. Manger. So I interviewed Thomas on my channel. And what was so interesting was when we, when we, when we had the interview, he talked about what happened was is that the, the first edition sold very well, which caught the church off guard. And it kind of was led to events that ultimately caused it to no longer be carried by the church. And then, um, so then he shopped it. He was able to have this, the copyright from my, wait a from second, my, Steve, um, as Steve, I'm, to I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you got to yeah. pay for your blessings. You're saying that I have to the what? first, the first edition of Thomas's new Testament translation mm -hmm. sold very well. And because it sold very well, yes. the church pulled the plug on it. I don't understand that. Because they weren't expecting it to do as well as it did. And so it, it, why did they pull and, the plug, do you think? So, 
because I, th- I think that they thought it would just be kind of this like a little niche thing. Mm-hmm. And it would be like, oh, look, we put out this translation and it ended up selling like gangbusters. And I don't think that they were, they just weren't prepared for that. And so it's just really interesting with, with the development that happened with that. So, and, and, and as a result, it caused a lot of commotion. And, 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 and as a result, they decided to pull it, even though it was selling very well, because it was kind of um, viewed, because they're also, I think they were getting a lot of feedback from people who were like King James, KGB only type people. And they were concerned. So I think there was a lot of politics that was happening at the time. And so, um, but then, uh, so Greg Copper's book um, now is published the second edition of, of, of the uh, version. But from my understanding, it's actually selling very well. So there, and, it, and from what I've been told from Thomas, Thomas is hearing from people that he is hearing from people that that edition or that the, the, his, his translation is actually being used on the ward bubble. So it is interesting to see this development and to kind of uh, <clears throat> document it uh, as well. So that's kind of my take on the whole thing. And like I said, his version essentially is a solid translation. It's done within the tradition of the ESV, which is considered to be a really solid translation within the, the evangelical world. And so I think it's a really cool thing to kind of see that it is actually being used by regular LDS folk, and it's being used on the word level, which is something that would have been unheard of just a few years ago. Yeah. And I just want to be crystal clear, Steve. I think Thomas Wayman's work is stellar. I think Thomas Wayman is stellar. My fear would be, and I'm glad that you're saying it sold well, when you make a New Testament translation for Mormons and the LDS church doesn't preference your translation, there's already a narrative working against you. And then Anybody outside the church, I would perceive as not really being excited by what a Latter-day Saint translation would look like. And so my gut would have said that this wouldn't have sold well at all. And so I'm quite surprised to hear that. No, yeah, and that, Steve. if you watched my interview with him, it, mm. it, hey, it shocked them. They, they, they actually, yes. You see this? Can you see from where you are? I'm here. I'm holding yes. up the new yes, Oxford, the new Oxford Annotated, Annotated Bible. It's the new Revised mm-hmm. Standard Version. I cannot tell mm-hmm. you what hell I caught for using this 15 years ago in Gospel Doctrine class. So, sure. you're right. If there's oh, a change, yeah. it's new. Because I can't believe the church has changed that much. I'm glad some people are able to use it. But I've got to think that they probably are getting pushback too because it is the KJV all the way down the line as far as most members are concerned. Was the was the first edition sold at Deseret Book? Yes. The second edition yep. not, though, correct? Uh, that, I, I can't answer that. You'd have to check with Greg Copper books on that, but uh, I don't believe so. But yeah, uh, but yeah no, that, that was the biggest surprise is that they, they sold out, like, they had, they had, like, two or three print runs that sold out thousands of copies, yeah. like almost immediately. Yeah, and that explains it. was it. a really sitting, remarkable thing. If it's sitting on the shelf at Deseret Book, it appears to have the approval of the church. And I think that would make a huge difference. My understanding is when I speak of the second edition is that if the church said like, no, no, thank you. If it's not sitting on the shelf at Deseret Book, I think it's going to be a whole lot less copies sold. 
that's that's probably true. Yeah, but but I do think that it's it's, it's in the bloodstream now. Yeah, no, totally. And I think Latter-day Saints are craving. Yeah, I think it's actually a beautiful translation. I think yeah. Latter-day Saints should read sure it. Sure it is. And 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 actually, yeah. So I, I'm, yeah. I, I like I said. Uh, either way, I just want to thank you guys for taking the call, taking my call tonight. And and um, it's always. Uh, I hope, did you guys have a happy Fourth of July, by the way? My fireworks weren't as good as the neighbors, but yes. It was a great day. <laughs> well, it was a great you know day. That I hung Steve. out. Say that again. Oh, right? that's good. And I saw some posts. I saw that you posted some stuff on Facebook about it. I hung out with a lot of people from the local ward uh, yesterday and some Mormon missionaries. So I, um, so I'm like totally ingratiated in the local <laughs> community here. But um, either way, guys, uh, you guys have yourself a great night. And awesome, thanks for taking Steve. my call. Thank you very much. Have a great night. Thanks so much, Steve. Later. So that's the only call to the show, and I had to solicit it. I was I was just going to take that one only because it's eight fifty three and I, I when he called I knew we'd have a good conversation with him and then I ended the calls for the show. By the way, Steve Pineker has a show. It's a Mormon book review. You might mm-hmm. want to check that out. Even though I understand that the real brains behind it is Rebecca Biblioteca and that Steve Pineker <laughs> is just a stooge puppet frontman. At least that's what Rebecca tells me. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> Uh, you're always stirring the pot, aren't you? Hey, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just telling the truth. Oh, man. Thomas, I really do hope at some point that the church does move on from the KJV, and I hope they take seriously the opportunity to use a good Latter-day Saints translation, which is yours. And uh, I do wish you luck. I have nothing about you in what I said tonight, just the situation of being placed sort of in no man's land. Uh, by the church backing away from having had you do that and then not using it. Yeah. So anything else from you, RFM? No, that's it. I'm looking forward to next week. And I think that I know what we'll be talking about, but I've got to do a lot of work to get ready for it. Okay. Have a great night, everybody. Please donate. Go to almost, or uh, Mormonism. Sorry, I almost did one of the other ones. Mormonism.org <laughs> and uh, click the donate button. RFM and I, Maven, we spend a ton of time prepping for these every week. Please folks, we survive on donations. Uh, five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, any of that would be great. And um, uh, we don't, I don't know if we put it up in the comments today, but there is a subscriber uh, URL. I'll put it in the show notes so folks can join the mailing list. We do send those out every month or two, a little email telling you about something we're doing within uh, within Mormonism Live or within Mormon discussion, the entity. Um, have a great night. RFM, thank you so much for the work you put in. Maven, thank you as always. And uh, folks, we really enjoy uh, putting on a show for you and hope you enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye, everybody.